0: This is Transformation
1: Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth.
2: Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 89. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the strategy, people process, and technology, size of change. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys. And my co-host, as always, is Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here today.
2: Great to have you again, as always, and uh, we've got a great episode planned for you today. But before I jump into what we'll cover today, just a reminder, we have new episodes of the show every Wednesday, which you can find on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all the usual audio podcast platforms that you might be listening to podcasts on. So be sure to subscribe to us and check us out there. Um, Today, we've got a great show for you. The first thing we'll cover are the hot topics and the trending topics in the digital transformation space. First of all, we're going to talk about... uh, Meeting Optimus, which is Tesla's and Elon Musk's um, robot that he's designed and created, and I'll be curious to have that discussion because I just read an article about that not too long ago. Um, we'll also dive into uh, what we can learn from artificial, what we can learn about artificial intelligence from octopi, um, which is the plural of octopus, which I did not know until we were about to film this, and you corrected me that it's not octopus; it's octopi when it's multiple. So. It's a word I've never used, but it's the first time you're hearing me use a word for the first time on this show. Uh, Probably won't be the last time. And then we'll also get into how cloud is reinventing cars and trucks, uh, how cloud technologies are enabling the automotive sector. And then finally, last but not least, we'll talk about data mining and Halloween, which is very timely given that Halloween is coming up here in just a couple of weeks. So that's the hot topics we'll cover in the opening segment. And then later in the show, we're gonna have our first guest who is Brad Feeks, who has been on the show in the past, but it's been a while. Um, Brad is the president of a company called Estes Group, which is a managed service provider and a cloud provider a cloud software provider. And he's gonna be on the show talking about IT outsourcing and just some of the pros and cons and challenges and risks to be aware of as you think about outsourcing. So we'll cover the usual type stuff like cloud, managed services, other aspects of outsourcing, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, all that good stuff. So be sure to stick around for that. And then finally, last but not least, the third segment and our last guest on the show will be Adam Cheatham. We're going to play you a presentation he gave at our recent digital Stratosphere conference where he talked about software selection, best practices, and things to be aware of. So Adam, who is a director of strategy and transformation here at Third Stage Consulting, will be providing that presentation for us later today. So before we get to our guest though, Kyler, how about these hot topics you've got for us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, excited to talk about Optimus, which is the new robot essentially that was revealed at a Silicon Valley event um, by Elon Musk and the Tesla team. And, and basically, it was wheeled on stage, but it showed the audience how it could do things like raise its knees and simple tax, tasks such as watering plants, carrying some boxes, lifting some metal bars. Um, so just showcasing what what that looks like. And basically what Elon Musk said is this is really a huge transformation in how manufacturing will happen um, via robotics. And this robot, to give you an example, will retail um, for $20,000. That's about 18,000 euros, and be available in three to five years. Um, And really, they're focusing on more productivity, abundance, and just revolutionizing the manufacturer space. What I wanted to talk to you about Eric a little bit today is, is it feels a little bit I know we're huge Elon Musk fans we we both you know admire his his overall innovation but it seems a bit hypocritical kind of of him to bring a, an AI-based robot when he had that famous quote about how artificial intelligence is the biggest threat to humanity. And it kind of hit a trigger for me because I wrote a blog a few weeks back about the Terminator effect, and he actually referenced that, um, which obviously he's he's pirating my content just so well. all sounds later, like
2: something he would do. Um, of
3: going to, right, Exactly. <laughs> 'cause <laughs> well aware, my my four followers, you know, they, they're they really engaged, but um, and, and you know, Elon he Musk talked about the,
2: we've, we've talked about that before, so I'm sure he's following your blogs and following you on social media. Absolutely. So, hundred uh, percent.
3: The first thing he does when he wakes up in the morning is he's like, what did third stage write? Which maybe he does, who knows? Um He's obviously a very in the know individual, but he talks right. about going down kind of this Terminator path um and what that means. Uh, and he also added in that he put in safeguards with the Tesla team, um, including a mandatory stop button that can't be tampered with when it comes to things like cybersecurity. Uh, so I wanted to get your take on that, knowing that obviously Elon Musk is a pioneer in innovation, but also is kind of added to that narrative of the threat of AI while still using it in, in his overall business practices.
2: Yeah, I, that's funny you say that. There's a couple things that come to mind. One is he, he also, in addition to mentioning that AI is a threat to humanity, he also had the faux pas, I guess you could say, as he was building up Tesla, the car manufacturer that he started, he tried to automate too much. He tried to move to robotics too quickly, and then he ended up having to sort of backpedal off that and put in more human labor to sort of clean up some of the deficiencies or some of the uh, flaws in the robotic uh, process line. So I think he has a way of sort of pushing the boundaries for sure. I think that's just his personality and his MO. And I think he he uh, also likes somewhat of a shock factor. Um, but I do think he's onto something with the AI being a, a threat to humanity and a threat to us as humans. I, I absolutely think that's true. But I think at the same time, you know, he's a smart business guy. And if that's where we're headed, you know, I don't think he's the type that's going to resist it because we're probably going there anyway, whether we like it or not. So, you know, why not? Why not embrace it and be a leader of that change? So. I don't know that I necessarily think it's a bad thing, although I guess you could say if he knows or he thinks that there is going to be some sort of ethical, um, you know, uh, or moral crisis that we face in the future, and he's enabling that, I suppose that's a that's a different argument. So that that I can see that potentially being a uh, a challenge to work through or a dilemma to work through. I just don't know how serious he is when he says. Uh, a lot of what he says, but especially that comment about AI being a threat to humanity. I, I don't know if he's saying that ton in cheek or if he's trying to get attention or what, but if he really believes that, I don't know. It's hard to say.
3: Well, I think the, the thesis that I took out of this is, of course, AI is an emerging technology that's going to become mainstream. It already has in some industries, right? And um, we'll talk a little bit about more cloud computing and cars specifically in our next hot topic. But the safeguards piece of understanding the limitations of the technology, and making sure there's processes in place to have any sort of stop factor or audit, which you know obviously third stage helps our clients go through that risk mitigation and understanding those different touch points in order to balance the the overall um, opportunity and ability of technology, but still understanding it kind of needs that human check, right?
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely.
3: So speaking of that, we're, we kind of have a car automotive heavy um, hot topics, but I think this is a really interesting um, topic when it comes to cloud computing and the overall evolution of car manufacturing and trucks as well, the trucking industry and supply chain how things are, are delivered and distributed. So what we've found in this study is that automotives are really shifting to be a software-defined industry, which they haven't always been. They've been more of a hard manufacturer technology, but now we're seeing cloud computing being a main kind of battleground when it comes to the automotive industry. Because cars are completely connected uh, and some of those those cloud computing opportunities are built on other applications. So when we talk about back backup, talk about that kind of cloud-delivered infrastructure that can support hundreds of thousands of these service vehicles um, and set them apart from others. Specifically, we look at autonomous trucking and being able to be more efficient in how we deliver our products in the, the trucking industry or on land. So looking at our supply chain challenges, um, self-driving trucks can go long distances. Obviously, they don't have that human factor. They can be more efficient when it comes to um, pathways, roadmaps, and then also fuel and safety and efficiency. And that's largely distinguished because of that cloud computing is needed as a foundation to be able to achieve that. Uh, And something I I wanted to kind of ask you about this specifically is in this research, it says a lot of these manufacturing are kind of launch padded off existing cloud technologies. I'll give you an example. So we look at something like Apple CarPlay, excuse me. So basically that's the CarPlay feature that's in a lot of vehicles and it's integrated into the Apple devices. So it creates... Self monitor driving systems, improve performance and and safety issues. You can read your text message on a a screen and have that ability to have that interface in more of a safe kind of uh, user um, experience. So I wanted to see if, if you thought that might be a main trend of using existing cloud technology and kind of launch padding that into industries that haven't always been cloud or software defined.
2: Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity and that's a great use case. I mean, it's a good example of how cloud can enable some some improvements or enhancements, especially when you combine cloud with um, Internet of Things and devices out you know, within the automobiles. And, and cloud is a great way to consolidate that data you know, with Internet of Things and multiple data sources. Cloud's a great way to do that. Um, it doesn't do it on its own, but when you combine cloud with other technologies, it can certainly do it. So I think it's a it's a great idea, and and you think about all the inefficiencies in the world, especially with supply chains and transportation. Um, e- even if you look at um, the impacts to the, to the climate, which a lot of organizations are not just looking at the dollars and cents, they're also looking at how does this impact the climate or the environment. That that's another you know benefit too from some of these cloud technologies for sure.
3: Absolutely. And what I really liked about this study, Eric, is it kind of went into the human factor as well. So in testing some of these autonomous trucking or those types of things, people are showing up for work more refreshed, more satisfied with their job, less stressed because they're not driving, you know, overall these different distances that can be a a huge impact on not only, you know, human sleep deprivation, family life, those types of different things. So it really kind of dug into the human side of those benefits. Well, of course, kind of um, in tangent with the Elon Musk safeguards, right? That that technology has lots of opportunity, but still needs governance around how it's monitored and analyzed, especially in a new marketplace in a in a new manufacturing environment.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it kind of gets back to your previous point about um, Optimus with with uh, Elon Musk. I mean, he, it's same sort of thing. You just have to, you can use technology, but you need to really direct the technology. Humans still need to direct it and put the parameters in place for how you're going to use it and, benefit from it and how you're going to mitigate the risk and all that good stuff.
3: Absolutely. Well, maybe um, the octopi, which I'm, I'm excited you got to try a new word today, and hopefully yeah. that's right and no one corrects. <laughs>
2: yeah, we'll, we'll get corrected um, so in the comments below if uh, I know,
3: right? Um, so one of our other interesting studies that I saw about um, how octopus Um, specifically the, the animal octopus can teach us about, um, artificial intelligence. And we've seen, um, octopus kind of really be in the mainframe of, uh, popular entertainment landscape. For example, the Oscar winning documentary, My Octopus Teacher, which is, you know, gotten rave reviews about understanding how an octopus brain works because it is such a unique animal. And mostly because they're they're kind of eerie, they're kind of creepy, right? They're masters of disguise, they can shift colors and skin. Um, there's not one bone in their body, except they're often seen walking across the ocean floor, or even in in a lot of cases, on land. Um, and they rewrite their own kind of map roadmap to adjust to their environment. They're masters of evolution. So in this specific study, we we looked at essentially what um, the octopus does specifically in distributing the brain power widely around its body, particularly in its arms. And this is very similar to how the hardware for um, smart TVs, smart watches, AI agents, self-driving cars kind of use a mothership, but the, the entire autonomous being acts as the technology. Um, and that's very similar to the, you know, the biomechanics of an octopus and they self driving cars, obviously autonomous vehicles perform tasks without us even knowing it, they evolve to their environment and they have kind of the central conscious system, just like octopi do. Uh, so this kind of question that I wanted to bring to the table is, is, um, do you think that there's an opportunity to use kind of biomechanics in understanding animals that might evolve into leveraging technology through robotics?
2: Wow. Uh, that's a, I know that's a big that's a one deep question. Yeah. Um, I, and it's funny because every time I try to anticipate where I think you're going to something, it's not where you're going. So I I need That's to stop trying to guess sweat. because I, I start to formulate right. the answers in my head of what I'm gonna to say to a question you're not asking. Um so but I, I
3: mean you can tell us what you think just in general. You know, I'm mean, gonna answer my question, not required, but
2: <laughs> I, I was thinking about tentacles and you know, with octopus and the tentacles and like mm-hmm. integration. It was it was a total stretch. I don't know why I was even thinking it, but I was thinking <laughs> of like how um how AI and learning, machine learning and responding is kinda of like the tentacles, but that's, that's a stretch, I suppose. So, um, again, why I should not try to guess what you're, what you're going to say. So, uh, but the question though, you're, you're asking about like how like learning from animal movement could help with robotics. Is that essentially the question?
3: Or even, even technology. I think the, the, um, the actual comparison between adaptive behavior and emerging technology is very interesting. Um, and it's both very primal in two very different ways
2: yeah and it's interesting you say that because uh just as a total tangent side note i was having a conversation with um dr christina serrano uh, who's been on the show in the past um she's been a couple of my youtube videos and um, she's a professor here in the united states and i had lunch with her uh last week and we were talking about how um you know cross how business needs to be more cross disciplinary to where you can learn from science know, apply scientific methods or scientific theories to business and vice versa um, and we were talking about um, organisms and how organism, organisms evolve is a lot like how businesses can and should evolve. So you can take some of those concepts from how biology and how organisms evolve into how businesses evolve and react to their environment and that sort of thing. So I think that's a, you know, kind of a segue into your question, which is, you know, how can we, how can we, how, what what kind of lessons can we bring to technology to help technology evolve not just in terms of machine learning, which is essentially what that is, is, is learning from data patterns and learning over time, but just technology in general and how you use technology. How could we be more flexible and responsive to how we do that? It seems like we're, we're kind of stuck in the past or we're stuck in the old way of thinking about how we use technology versus, um, you know, continuously evolving. I think in general, that's an area we could learn a lot from.
3: Yeah, and I think the challenge behind that is it's very different from adapting, um, you know, an animal to new evolutions. But in that herd mentality, how do we adapt an entire organization at once in unification to a a new technology? But I think we've come across something that we can write some blogs on and do some videos on, on um, the octopi method. Yes, I like
2: it. We could trademark that Yeah.
3: Right, right. Well, we'll we'll kind of bring back the the deep piece and talk about data mining and Halloween candy. You know, lighthearted a little bit right. more. Um, but really, the the here in the United States, which I did learn from my research that um, Halloween is a global holiday and it actually um, it evolved. Or came from, started from uh, a Celtic tradition in Ireland. Because we always try and keep our content globalized so that our global audience, you know, can engage with us. Uh, so that was something I did learn. It's very popular in Canada, Europe, and the United States, kind of emerging in Australia, but just a little tangent there for you, the evolution of the, the Halloween holiday.
2: I did not know that. Um, There's something new every yeah. every time we do this podcast.
3: Right, right. So the National Federation here in the United States, um, they look at e-commerce data, purchasing data, customer behavior, and they did um, uh, an analysis about uh, the spending on Halloween candy uh, that will be about $10.6 billion in total this year, they're forecasting. And um, so 96% of these survey participants said they intend to spend around a third of their Halloween budget on candy alone, because nobody wants to be that house that you come to and, and you don't have candy. That's just, you know, what kind of monster literally doesn't have candy on Halloween? No. <laughs> uh, so what they did is they actually broke down the data and mined it by state so they looked at historical data from the last 15 years um, worth of Halloweens, and they uh, they attached one major candy to each state in the United States um, from manufacturers and um, distributors data. So I thought it might be fun for us to use some states and you can guess the top Halloween candy.
2: Okay. Interesting. Yeah, let's do that. That'll, that'll be fun. I'm, I'm not highly confident that I'll get it right, but I, I'll, I'm game yeah. to play it.
3: Okay, great. Well, let's do a few. Obviously, we have to do Colorado, where our our, um, our North American headquarters are for um, third stage. So what do you think is the top purchased candy in Colorado?
2: Uh, I'm thinking either granola bars or something all natural, no sugar, <laughs> something really hippie-ish, not to stereotype too much, but <laughs> that's kind of what Colorado is.
3: Yeah, well, there you go. Um, well, we have a lot of these in my house. Um, specifically, we use them as bribes for potty training for my two toddlers. So Hershey kisses oh. is the number one candy in Colorado. Uh,
2: so, well, it, it makes, not even close. Not even yeah, I was way off on that one. I, was, I totally misread, misread the demographic <laughs> here in Colorado. So, and I live here. Right? You think I'd get that right and at least get that one right?
3: <laughs> yeah. So let's let's go let's go east and then we'll go west. Okay. So what do you think in um, in South Carolina? What is their top candy?
2: <laughs> um, I, I was just thinking of the Charleston shoes. Is that what they're called? Those Charleston shoes. Yeah. Oh, well, that's
3: a good. That's a good guess. Yeah, I that's mean, a good I guess. I don't Again, know if there's any
2: affiliation or connection close. between them. No, okay. What what is yeah, it?
3: Yeah, no, clothes. It's Butterfinger, which is my oh. personal favorite, which is oh, why I chose it. That would be where I would be in the Butterfinger. I always got to have the crunch. Yeah. Um. So then let's go. Let's go west to North Dakota. What do you think is the top one in North Dakota to round out our our guessing game? Snickers. That's a good guess. Hot tamales. Oh, yeah.
2: Good they guess. They like it not hot the- there. Wow. Well, I mean, it's I never, so
3: cold. Yes. They need to warm up somehow yeah. because they're free. Something
2: like heavier, like because it's cold and yeah, you just want sure. comfort. I was thinking Snickers. So but okay, that makes sense.
3: Yep. Yep, definitely. But if you'd like to know what your state is, just pop your state where you're joining us from in the comments on wherever you're watching, and I will go through and let you know what top candy is in your state. That's my commitment to you as our audience.
2: Now, can you also do that for countries? Like if, uh, if I'm not in the United States and I want to know what my country's top selling candy is, or is this just a US-based study, the Natural This
3: Federation? was a US-based because it's a national, the, the study was done through the National Retail Federation, which is okay. just in the United States. Yep. But I always love a challenge when it comes to research around data mining. So if you pop your country in there, I'll give it my 100% to figure out what top candy is in your country. Or maybe you can even teach us culturally what candy do you, do you like, and we can have a candy tasting globally here. I'm all for that.
2: Yeah, and I'm, I'm just glad you didn't ask me to answer for the other countries, because if I can't get the states right in the United States, it's going to be a disaster of me trying to guess what's you know culturally acceptable or not in different countries.
3: Yeah. Well, we're here to learn from our audience that user generated content makes us smart. So we'll yep. learn from you guys.
2: Yeah, exactly. Good deal. Well, that's good stuff. Well, thanks for thanks for that uh, tidbit of, of info. And um, it's great to know that now, because of technology and data mining, we can ascertain what the top selling candies are in different parts of the world. I think that's great. Uh, and you so imagine what else. The we yeah,
3: oh, yeah, totally. It's
2: Just just the beginning. Well, good. Well, um, we are going to bring on a guest here in a moment to talk about, uh, we've talked a lot about cloud in this opening segment. We're going to talk about cloud in this next interview, but we're also going to talk about managed service providers and just IT outsourcing in general. I kind of wanted to broaden the scope a little bit beyond just cloud technologies. Um, So we'll touch on cloud and managed services, but we'll also talk about IT IT outsourcing in general. So for that conversation, we're going to have Brad Feeks from Estes Group on the show. First, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over, the, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you wanna see replays or you wanna catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture data migration cloud trends in the industry um, how to avoid failure some of the legal aspects to think about contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation all that is stuff that you'll get by registering for stratosphere 2022 replay and again go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event so hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening we'll see you soon Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 89. My name is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting Group. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, also from Third third Stage Consulting. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms that you might listen to podcasts on. So be sure to check us out there. Um, I'm excited for our next guest. It's a guest we've had on the show before. But it's been several months it might have even been last year was the last time we had him on Um, he's been on a couple times now Uh, his name is brad feeks he's the president of estes group which is a cloud and managed services provider uh, here based in the united states and with me uh, or joining me will be uh, brad to talk about um, cloud managed services and more specifically it outsourcing just the whole concept of what should we outsource what shouldn't we outsource what are the pros and cons of outsourcing what are the challenges and pitfalls um, all that good stuff. So uh, with that being said, we'll, we'll have Brad on the show to talk about how the sausage is made, so to speak, with uh, with the outsourcing model. Um, so Brad, thanks for being on the show.
0: Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me, Eric. Good to be back.
2: Yeah, great to have you again. It's been a while, so it's, it's good to have you here. Maybe to start, just tell us a little bit about your background, and then we'll sort of dive into this whole IT outsourcing discussion. Sure. Tell us about your role and what, how you grew up in the space.
0: Well, first off, um, you talk about the sausage being made. I got to do a quick tangent here. So I'm in my uh, basement of, of my house, which was my grandfather-in-law's house. He was the son of a butcher, spent his whole life trying to figure out his father's uh, sausage-making recipes. His father had uh, apprenticed as a sausage maker in Germany before coming back over the pond. So um, I am sitting in the spot where a st- sausage stuffer used to reside it's about 300 pounds cast iron i had to pull the damn thing up the stairs and almost (laughs) tore my biceps so when you talk about the sausage being made that's a term near and dear to my heart i'm not the biggest sausage eater but um i've had to apprentice under him a couple of times anyways we we won't go too deep into that subject but yes uh brad feeks estes group Um, so estes group is a company that is a managed i.t and cloud provider in addition to doing ERP services, so we're a company that uh, kind of went laterally shifted from managed uh, or implementing ERP systems uh, functionally as a, as a system integrator and moved to much more ER, uh, ERP managed services. So hosting the ERP applications and then providing auxiliary services on top of that, we found over the years that our customers were asking us more and more, not just for how to configure the system, but how to maintain the system and all of its auxiliaries as that system deploys and, and branches out. Great. Yeah. And, 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 uh, I
2: just have to say this too, you're the, you're probably the one person I know where I could talk about any sort of analogy or random fact, and you will have another random factor or <laughs> analogy to tie it all together. So that's awesome that, uh, I just happened to mention sausage production and you have a story about where you're sitting right now, <laughs> where that is, yeah, but.
0: We- we could ramble. we could we could definitely ramble. You want to talk about Marvel comic book heroes and movies and such. We could <laughs> go down a lot of rabbit holes, but I'll, I'll try to keep us on track at least myself.
2: That's a, that's a great uh, that's you just gave me an idea for a potential uh, topic in the future. maybe Marvel, mm. the, the connection between Marvel superheroes and digital transformation or cloud. Or, I don't know.
0: Well, maybe uh, maybe we can dress up for Halloween. I'm a Thor guy. I loved the hair uh, hair envy, Chris Hemsworth, hair Envy, among <laughs> other things. but
2: anyways right. right. we 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 digress, of course. Um, and I'm sure there'll be more digressions uh, in this conversation based on past ones you and I have had. Um, so I guess just to start, you know, if you look back, going back to the 90s, um, it seems like organizations have sort of ebb and flowed in their um, appetite for outsourcing in general. You, you've seen these trends kind of come and go where organizations are starting to try to outsource back office functions like accounts payable or certain finance and accounting functions. Certainly, IT is one of them. Um, but I feel like IT is one area of business in general that over the last five to ten years has really been the pendulum has been swinging pretty aggressively toward outsourcing um, with managed services, with cloud solutions. And, and organizations seem to be in general, not all of them, but in general, organizations are looking for ways to sort of push that IT function out to others that can manage it better than they can. Um, maybe not all the functions, but, but certain ones. So I guess just to start, um, why is this? Why do you think this IT outsourcing trend is such a real thing, and um, and why is it so important during digital transformations in general?
0: Oh boy! So I would say there's there's one kind of continuing factor. So I grew up um, entered the world in the 1990s and uh, at the time we were doing a lot of Six Sigma and Lean Sigma activities. And some of that had to do with the idea of what we called core competencies at the time, that we wanted a business to focus on what they were really good at doing and finding ways to um, outsource things that weren't core to their business Uh, i had companies say many companies say we're not a software house we are a manufacturer of x so our core competency shouldn't be software development or it shouldn't be managed IT. it shouldn't be addressing the infrastructure of the system that keeps us up now every customer has kind of a different dividing line in terms of the things that they see as core and the things as they see as auxiliary because quite often um What is it? Marshall McLuhan, the median is the message. So at some time, at some point, the the underlying infrastructure becomes part of the delivery of the product or service. Um, And at some point it becomes ancillary. So a lot of customers are trying to figure out those core pieces are versus those auxiliaries. So I think that trend continues, that there are always folks who are trying to figure out, I I don't want to worry about the server closet. I want to worry about making and selling and distributing goods. Um, So that's one piece. Uh, Another I would say is less strategic and more pragmatic. I run into a lot of customers who are losing their IT staff over time through just normal attrition, retirement, uh, illness, uh, the COVID pandemic changed, all kinds of things about uh, what people wanna do. I know IT uh, network administrators who decided that, you know, I'm gonna take this PPP money and I'm gonna go make furniture for a living. And suddenly, yeah, suddenly you don't have those uh, network admins anymore because they're off making tables and chairs. Um, Other cases, you have uh, simple health issues. We've had people who've come to us uh, frequently with one, uh, our our system administrators retiring, and we don't have a person in the in the region that can fill that void. Um, two uh, honestly, deaths have been an issue where people uh, abruptly lose members of their company and have to, you know very quickly ramp up someone else to come in there and when they get that option it's either you go down the hiring path and you try to find that body or you try to find someone who's a a partner with you that can um add those services immediately and figure out a way to add the appropriate number of services so i I would say you know in terms of macroeconomic and and strategic there's a lot of things that are driving folks in this direction
2: do you see Certain types of organizations that are more open to outsourcing, like, for example, you, you talked about people dying and maybe people that have been tenured, highly tenured within an organization, they have all this tribal knowledge. Um, are those more mature, more established organizations any more or less likely to, to move to an IT outsourcing model than, say, a small or high growth company?
0: You know i, I would say it, it might sometimes betray what your assumption would be going in a well-established company might actually be a late adopter to manage services because they've already built a solid architecture infrastructure which includes a hiring structure for getting people in and replacing them and those might be the most hesitant to uh, brush that off so i see companies that are in the 200 million dollar range tend to have a pretty good infrastructure set up and they tend to be as interested now companies that are in that range between 20 and it to be a sweet spot of folks who are um, sensitive to sudden losses of employees and also very interested in trying to figure out ways to cut head count and uh, you know focus their head count in certain directions. Also, I think there's probably another trend that we're seeing and, and you guys have actually been talking about this. We've been having some banter over LinkedIn in terms of Uh, The reconfiguration of IT departments to focus more on strategic initiatives and and going back to core competencies in some ways is that IT is still a core competency, but they should be focused on the business matters much more than the technical matters. The technical matters are things that are relatively commoditized such that they can be handled by one of many people and the areas where the business where IT can really have an impact end up being much more things that are customer and supplier focused. uh, end user capabilities, providing, uh, things that are differentiators to that company within their, their own, you know, market.
2: That's a great point. So are, you're saying then that organizations are taking kind of bifurcating their IT functions are taking the strategic stuff and then the more commoditized type stuff. And mm-hmm. it's more of the commoditized type stuff that they're moving or more likely to move to, to an outsource model.
0: I think, yeah, the commoditization is definitely one big factor. The other is um, mission criticality. So you might have a commoditized service like, say, network switches, and you have resources who can handle that. Um, and you might have also server management. So the network is the thing that the cus- that your internal team needs in order to be to communicate kind of laterally across the organization. And this becomes really important if you're adding multiple branches. We see that in distribution a lot, where distributors will have 10 branches. They'll have like five people in a branch, and they need to be communicating really rapidly across that branch. So those IT staff that you have now, they're, they're mobilized to attack those issues because those become mission critical, whereas the server is just kind of sitting there. And those are things that are then, you know, easier to uh, hand off. Now, in, some companies might take that same approach and and look to uh, outsource and use managed services to handle both the network and the back-end server architecture. All depends kind of then what that that line that I was talking about in terms of what is mission critical, what is auxiliary. Right, right.
2: That's great. Well, maybe to break down IT outsourcing a bit, Uh, Maybe tell us the major components. I mean, certainly managed services and cloud are sort of the two main things I think of when I think of IT outsourcing. But maybe help us understand what are the major components and how do they differ from one another within the sourcing model?
0: So I, I tend to treat cloud as a managed service. I tend to say that folks are using and consuming managed services even when they don't realize it right? Um, mm-hmm. And I use the managed services, anything that back in 1990, a company would have had to manage on their own. So if you were using Goldmine in 1990 as your CRM, you were installing it, hosting it locally, providing users access. Now you're using Salesforce and that Salesforce application is a SaaS based. So it still is deployed to a server somewhere. There's still all of that business logic, the database, the application server, etc. All those things are managed. You're now just consuming the application in a SaaS model, really, it's the the management of all of that server's back end is still being done by someone and you're still paying for it but you're paying for it through that subscription um, so cloud's certainly one big facet there and of course we could divide the cloud into all kinds of subsets depending on the types of services that are rendered etc um I think security is, of course, one big area um, that would be like uh, like perimeter uh, edge security um, around your network's edge or internal security or what we used to call antivirus. Now, I think they call it endpoint sounds much more clever. Um, so security is as a service is certainly one big area um, backup and disaster recovery. So DRAS is a big deal for customers because in our in our ransomware age, um, the ability to roll back to a stable version of your network in the event of a disaster like ransomware becomes a big piece so that that's one often one area um help desk so you have a lot of folks who are looking for help desk assistance so that instead of calling up bill down the hall now they have a whole group of people that they can reach out to in the event that their computer bombs out on them and so that that outsourced it might actually be a out in source so i've seen folks who are looking for footprint uh, resources who are, they don't own them or have to employ them, they subscribe to them, but they are located, you know, locally at a customer's uh, site so that they can provide that that face-to-face interaction. I would say even in terms of, uh, we have customers in the ERP front who are now look, coming to us looking for ERP-based subscription services. So it's more application layer support, things that a support analyst in a large company would be uh, providing someone who has um, knowledge of your ERP system and how it should be used. And when issues come up, can troubleshoot those. Folks are looking for for that service now, either even to be something that they, they consume without uh, having to have a, an actual physical person uh, that they employ to do it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Now, are there are you seeing much resistance to moving to that model? Because what you just described is is fairly disruptive, right? It's just totally different than how organizations were viewing and managing their IT functions 10 or 20 years ago. Um, And I remember 10 or 20 years ago, or maybe 10 years ago is a a more accurate timeframe, but I I do remember about 10 years ago, I felt like a lot of CIOs and IT types were still pretty skeptical of the cloud and Sort of pushing back on the the loss of control and the fact that they don't have the server sitting in their back you know it room back in their server room it just felt like they didn't have the same control or visibility on more of the human adoption side are you still mm-hmm. seeing that or, or signs of resistance from organizations where it's sort of a threat to their jobs or the security whatever the case may be
0: i definitely and uh, i think a lot of it still is justified um as a, uh, you know, as a person who is both a provider and a consumer of IT services, I understand the level of service that I can get internally by hiring a person to help me with the things that I need. And if I'm not getting that same level of service from a provider, I'm going to be hesitant, I'm going to be resistant that 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 service can exist as a network admin, it can have to do with the differences between um, SaaS based software versus a more on premise or or private cloud in terms of are, are the services that I'm getting worth the amount of investment that I'm putting in and am I losing things in the transition. So there's a lot of definite, um, I would say, general tire kicking probably is the right term to understand is this service truly going to give me what I need and am I not going to lose things um, in making that transition? Now some of it also might have to do with um, people fearing loss of control and or loss of employment. Those tend to be challenges. Now in a lot of cases where we're replacing people who've left that there's a gap to fill. And so filling that gap, naturally, uh, you you circumvent a lot of the change management challenges, because they are in need of those services. So they're, they're much more willing to bring someone in. Now, when you have existing infrastructure and existing people, working out that relationship becomes a big challenge. And, and for us, there's certainly some challenges there to figuring out what the right line is for every customer.
2: Right, right.
0: Yeah, it makes makes
2: total sense. Um, and I'll be curious to see over time, you know, how that change curve or that change adoption, uh, openness or willingness sort of uh, evolves over time as as people get more used to this whole this whole cloud and managed service model. We're here with Brad Feeks having a conversation talking about IT. Out-
4: if you are aiming for transformation success. Turn to 3rd Stage Consulting Group. 3rd Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative,
2: welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number eighty-nine. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler cheatham and we are in the middle of a conversation with Brad Feeks talking about IT outsourcing. Here's a interesting uh, comment from Gasan um, over on LinkedIn before the LinkedIn feed went down. Um, but he, he says he pulled over at a drive-through at Wendy's to order a meal. The guy who took my order, Mike, who spoke in an American accent, was in fact rahesh from India, and this was back in 1983. So. This, so it's not really a question tied to this, but it's sort of a, a reminder that this outsourcing model is really nothing new. I mean, it's something we've been experimenting with as a global society, I suppose, for the last, you know, 30 to 40 years for sure. Um, and it seems like now it's just picking up steam and now you're starting to see some real, um, you know, use cases and more mainstream adoption of some of these models, especially in the world of IT, uh, like we're talking here today. Um, what are... What are some of the pros and cons, or cost benefit of migrating to an outsourced model, whether it's cloud, cloud slash managed services, or any other sort of outsourcing with an IT?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So in terms of uh, costs in general, costs are quite often relative to the people in, in question and in the services that are being rendered. What, what often I see is if you're going to employ an, an employee full-time and you're going to expect a managed service provider to provide all of those sets of services that the employee provided, your costs might end up being pretty much a wash or you might end up paying more for a managed service just because you're paying for um redundancy 24-hour service etc um the what you're trying to get when you work with a, a managed IT provider is to avoid what you might call that that single point of contact and that that bottleneck of a specific role or individual who's doing all the things and in order to be able to achieve those they have to extend themselves significantly over weekends evenings of uh, you know doing server backups and restorations updates all those things require a lot out of an individual person that often in, in smaller organizations turns that person into kind of a bottleneck so if they're suddenly not there if they're on vacation the the whole machine comes to a grinding halt so those are one of the benefits that you come to when you you work with a managed service provider another would be is that uh, MSPs generally can take that technology that they they develop for one situation and then extend that over other situations. So if you have uh, monitoring agents that are looking for uh, file backups or failed processes running, you don't need an individual out there on the weekend making sure that MRP completed over the weekend. Rather, you can have tools that do that for you, and then. Managed by exception uh, managed service providers get efficient by managing by exception and having building tool sets and leveraging tool sets that exist that do that work for you. So I think that's one of the keys is that if you're coming to a managed service and you're looking for benefits, it should come from a provider that can, that can lay out some of those tools and say, these are the things we do that would prevent, you know, human uh, work having have, I had one, one it director that I used to work with and he said, they always try to uh, automate the mundane. Right? So if there's something that's a repeatable process, it's a mundane process, it's not something that requires a, a huge amount of intellectual capital that's something where you should be using uh, RPA or BPR, or one of those other great acronyms to try and make that thing happen automatically without the need for human intervention. And I think that's where MSPs can add some value because, you know, if they're adding human intervention on the things where that are really mission critical and really do require some experience and background, et cetera, by automating all the mundane, they, they give themselves more time to jump in on the big hitting things when they do a, to arise.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It allows you to stay a little more focused on the, The higher value higher higher criticality uh, type stuff exactly Uh, so here's speaking of cost benefit pros and cons here's a question from uh, third stage consulting posted over on youtube Um, how do you protect your ip your intellectual property when it comes to outsourcing what should be included in the sow and and maybe we could just talk for a moment more broadly even beyond that you know who who does own the um who owns the ip and, and who owns the data who owns the software and and then the second part of that is what they're asking here, which is, you know, how do you protect that IP when you're when you're outsourcing?
0: Mm-hmm. So I think one. Yeah. So two questions Let's start with the, the idea of ownership. Uh, generally, I approach it in terms of what we're providing, the services that we're providing, the tool sets that we provide. Those are the things that are the domain of the MSP or the, the services provider. Um, the environment in which that occurs, that's kind of an open question sometimes, especially if you're delving into cloud. Um, If you're managing your server, uh, the ecosystem of your customer, and they they own that physical ecosystem there, then there's a very clear line of delineation that says, okay, this is where the line is drawn, you are managing our physical environment. Now, when that becomes virtualized, that gets to be a, a little more difficult. So quite often, the licensing might be something that the is part of the service offered so the licensing might actually be owned by the managed service provider Um, in terms of the actual ip when you get into that case pretty much that is all part of uh, the customer's uh, proprietary rights and those are things that um, a managed service provider needs to be very careful both to have clear um, understanding as to this is how deep we go into the data And this is where we stay, stay out. Um, And also this is uh, the, the levels of ownership that exist. And when, if we were ever to terminate a relationship, this is how we would go about our way of disseminating and bringing back what, is uh, properly owned by that customer. Now, I think a lot of that also has to do with the um, jurisdiction that you're working within within, and kind of the legal um, underpinnings. Uh, if you're like an ITAR compliant or a CMMC, if you're working in like Department of Defense or what have you, they have very strict standards about what you have to follow both as a company and then any of your vendors, any of your service providers need to be doing that as well. So we just went through, um, sock two uh, certification which is one of those uh, certifications that are out there that that helps ensure that we're doing all the right things to make sure that our business practices are not compromising our customers by kind of transitive property you're trying to avoid that so if you're looking at a managed service provider you want to make sure do they are they compliant in all the areas where you would need them to be compliant in order to support you know your own business processing uh, we have several customers where our compliance is, is absolutely mandated for them to be able to do what they're doing. So if they're if you're in a DOD situation, you're probably not going to be able to use public cloud, right? Public cloud, the lines of delineation between companies are, are two paper thin. You need to be in an environment, a government cloud, which is normally some form of private cloud with some pretty heavy firewalls and air gapping and all that good stuff. Um, but you want to make sure that your provider's uh, capabilities in terms of compliance match what your, your needs are as a business.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and are there anything in terms of, um, I guess a follow up to that would be anything in terms of cybersecurity. Um, you know, sometimes people will ask us as consultants, you know, is my, is my stuff, you know, is my data and my, all my competitive information, is it safe in the cloud, knowing that I don't own it anymore or I don't, I don't uh, physically own it or possess it on my four walls of my office. Now it's in the cloud someone else is doing the managed service model. How do you handle cybersecurity and how does that compare to um, what an internal mom and pop IT department might be able to do?
0: Uh, There's some definite concerns there. And I think that's one of the biggest pushbacks of SaaS software that I've seen is the lack of access and control to the data layer, except as mitigated through the application layer. Um, And I, I find a lot of customers get very nervous about that. And I've seen, because um, we've transitioned several customers from a SaaS based system into more of a private cloud. And actually the act of getting your data back is is something that's uh, difficult. Uh, vendors make it hard for you to decouple from them. So the act of getting your database is actually a, a several day process. Not that it takes that long, just in terms of You know, it tends to be a low priority item for them and getting that data back can be a little nerve wracking because it's, of course, as business central to to everything you're doing. So I think that's a for us, it's it ends up being, you know, How safe something is has to do with how um, secure the provider is. If you're working in a public cloud, you can expect that that level of safety is lower, which is why government mandates uh, tighter restrictions. So the question is, if it's, if it's good, if it's not good enough for the Department of Defense, is it good enough for your company? That's something you should always be asking. So as a and this was interesting. We had just done a webinar last week or the week before on a data center and kind of some of the considerations to go through in terms of uh, choosing a data center. Because uh, your, your cloud environment is only as safe as the data center in which it's hosting. If you find out that your service provider has a uh, data center in a hurricane zone, you can imagine now if, if you're a, a company in Florida and a local data center and, and there's a, a barrier wall breaking and a, a swell coming in, uh, we've had customers come to us out of Louisiana because their server room was literally underwater. Um, so the location of a data center it becomes one you know huge factor. Is it's is it um, so even you, your concept with cybersecurity? I start with physical security, all the basics. Is it is it surrounded by a a a big thick wall with barbed wire? Does it have redundant power? Um, does it have, uh, you know, X number of gallons of diesel fuel so it can run those generators. How many barriers is from the internal to the external? I see normally three barriers is the key. You have an outside brick wall, you have a first panel brick wall. And then once you get primary access, now you have a secondary wall um, inside where the actual data center is hosted. And you have something like eyeball security to get through so that you can really limit the number of people who have access. And then once you get into there, you certainly you now have uh, secondary cages and stuff. And some of those certifications and uh, such are about that physical security. So you really want to ask yourself, you know, both physically and in terms of cybersecurity, how secure is your provider making that data? Because if a, if a data provider can't secure your data, either physically or in terms of cyber, you're really putting yourself in, in a challenge. We, we have customers who come to us because their MSP had gotten ransomed. Um, So that was one case that we had just recently where their own MSP, their managed service provider, had gotten ransom. It took them a week to get their data back. So we had to take their data, scrub the living daylights out of it to make sure that nothing was still persisting and then stand it up in a new environment. So that's a a legitimate risk and something that you definitely want to be critiquing when you make decisions. You guys do software selection. I, I think there's a certain amount of everything needs some kind of selection. Process where you are running something through the the gauntlet of questions and confirmations to make sure that what you have meets your needs, and um, you want to always avoid taking things for granted when you when it comes to outsourcing. Yeah, and I know you guys at,
2: at Estes, you you focus on not just managed services and cloud in general, but you also um, help clients deploy different types of uh, enterprise applications and. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're doing that, um, some of those software vendors that you guys work with or that you help deploy on the technical side are offering either private cloud and or public cloud solutions, um, from what I understand, as, as far as the, the vendors you're working with. So I guess sort of shifting to a question related to that um, from over on YouTube, um, when it comes to private cloud, what type of businesses should focus on a private cloud solution versus a public cloud? Like, how, how would I know if I'm a business, which one's best for me or, or what my options really are?
0: Mm hmm. Oh, boy. So that that becomes a. Uh... A question that has a bunch of different threads. Let's, let's hit a couple of the big ones here. So one has to do with um, configurability versus customizability. So the degree to which the complexity of your business requirements inside of your organization, the degree to which that affects your need to tailor your ERP can uh, affect whether or not you go down a private or a public uh, route because a, a public cloud SaaS-based system is, is configurable without being nearly as customizable. Um, and because of that, you find yourself with a, a limit set of things that you can do to that application to get it to perform the way it needs to to support your um, core competencies, your, your differentiators. If those differentiators require a greater de- a degree of, of tailoring, then you're probably better in a private cloud because a private cloud gives you a degree of access and control that, that the public doesn't have. And quite often, you know, uh, ERP vendors, bless their hearts, tend to say that, oh, it's all the same. When in truth, the, um, the private cloud or the on-premise licensure of the system offers capabilities and functionalities that their public cloud version doesn't. And I mean, you guys have have uh, chronicled this long and hard as companies try to migrate on-premise systems into the cloud. Those challenges of getting all that functionality that was built using one very specific paradigm to now function within a very different paradigm, there are some growing pains there, and I see customers still feeling a fair bit of that. So the functionality gap is one piece there. Um, I would say complexity now comes to uh, another level when you talk about integrations. All right, so if you're playing uh, IT buzzwords i'm going to hit in one right in the center hybrid cloud one of those great terms right right up there with digital transformation it's one of those dig, uh, drinking games if we played the the digital transformation drinking game we'd be under the table by now but um so hybrid clouds end up being where um, you you integrate your core application with all these ancillary applications to provide auxiliary functionality. This might be e-commerce, this might be CRM, this might be quality management, engineering, and these things need to connect with your application. So anything that connects with your application is a potential security risk. Um, so you need to be careful to understand how is that connection occurring and what um, s- kind of system is required to support that connection. Um, because some systems uh, work only at that kind of Web API layer. Uh, REST is probably our, our most famous acronym right now. Um, a lot of vendors struggle with a REST API that can handle full functionality. So quite often you find um requiring a third party to live at the application or database server levels to be able to provide that integrated functionality. That is not possible in a SaaS-based system, a private cl- or a public cloud system where everything is arm's length from, from your application. So for companies that need that level of integration up and down the stack, you end up finding yourself needing to go down uh, a private cloud option. I had one customer who did just that. They, they moved from uh, an on-premise into a pure SaaS, and then realized that every integration line that they had built needed to be radically reconstructed um, in order to make it uh, SaaS ready. So they ended up spending what was supposed to be a a two month, uh, it was they were promised a two month conversion ended up being nine months. So that extra seven months was all figuring out how all those integrations would work and turning those into kind of API level integration. So basically they ended up having a baby in nine months for what they thought would be a much shorter putt uh, in terms of a migration. I'm comparing right. golf and childbirth. I apologize. Those are some strange metaphors. Yeah. And we already
2: covered sausage making. I mean, there's, there's a lot of metaphors we're, uh, <laughs> we're jumping to here. <laughs> well, what about in the, uh, in the cloud, in a cloud environment, how does it work with like integration between applications or putting in on top of it a, a business intelligence or analytical tool layer, you know, leveraging that big data to get better analytics and insights or just basic integration of systems. I mean, how does that sort of that traditional way of thinking about systems of integration and the reporting, the business intelligence, all that stuff, how does that differ in the cloud or does it differ in the cloud versus uh, an on-prem sort of a solution?
0: I would say in, in a cloud, the best thing is you have uh, kind of that cloud Cloud layer of cloud firewall that allow for a much more specific allowance of what goes in and what goes out. When, I, when we migrate from an on private cloud, we see sometimes their firewalls have been in the past. How many potential bills are there? So when we when we spin up a cloud, by default, everything's all ports are closed as needed, and when you open a port in order to allow migration to come. Now you're working with a vendor to understand, okay, these are the IP list, and these are the ones that we will not whitelist. Should this you know, uh, be getting uh, communication from Bangladesh? If not, okay, we turn that off. You can govern that, I think, better in a, in a cloud environment than you can uh, in a lower level. Uh, outside of that, I think the cloud oper- uh, raises opportunities for merging of data in ways that are, are much more expansive than uh, on-premise just because of uh, scalability. Really, you know, one of the best things about cloud is the idea of scalability. So that if you need extra bandwidth, extra memory storage, et cetera, you're not going and buying hardware and configuring it. You're just turning some dials in terms of uh, what size your VMs need to be and, and how those things need to communicate to each other. And then when you build a server architecture in the cloud now because it's all inside the the cloud network the communication internally can be much more trustworthy because it's not it's not an edge integration it's more internal to that so i think there's a lot of uh, what i see a lot of our customers are taking the cloud has become the the uh stepping stone to things like business intelligence and better uh visualizing cubing taking your data and turning it into valuable information the cloud was kind of that first step to getting there Um, So that's, I think, one of the biggest benefits that I see folks getting as an auxiliary benefit of, of some of these decisions.
2: We're here with Brad Feeks having a conversation talking about IT outsourcing. We have a lot more to cover, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
5: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
2: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 89. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham and we are in the middle of a conversation with Brad Feeks talking about IT outsourcing. And here's a kind of a follow-up comment from Gassan over on on uh, YouTube that I wanted to get your feedback on Brad, and that is: once data is in the cloud, it isn't private unless digital data supply chain flows encrypted the data in motion and when at rest. But then again, that's debatable. Um, so I guess maybe it's just a broader. Maybe I'll kind of rephrase the question here: of you know, mm-hmm. is is data really private if you have a private cloud established um, for your for your applications, and if so? You know how do you protect it or what are some of the protocols that are in place to help protect that data
0: mm-hmm. so I think there's a, anytime that data is leaving your internal network yes it's no longer private I think that's a, a legitimate challenge anytime you communicate out, outside of your network and so if you are uh, truly looking for the most private of private clouds that private cloud is truly an on-premise uh, server architecture that's been spun up into VMs and so now you have a private private cloud. Um, I think the key there is what we call air gapping in terms of uh, when you set up systems you're configuring them in such a way that they're not sharing any resources that's kind of one key place uh, where you can uh, keep some of that uh, security natural inherent inside of a private cloud the other would be um, using. uh, virtual firewalls versus physical firewalls you know having even at the data center level there is some degree of uh, physical appliance based of uh, barriers that are helping prevent uh transmigration of data of course yeah you mentioned encryption the challenge with encryption is um security versus performance and the t- and, and invested to try to couple and recouple that data. Um, so, I, I would say you know, there are legitimate challenges that people feel uh, in terms of the security of their data once it's left their system. The, the key, I think, ends up being um, at, at that data center provider and all the layers above that. What are they doing to try to make sure that that data is no longer uh, uh, there's a few chances or, or many barriers to making that data public as possible and that goes back to that we're talking about physical security but also uh you know network security and, and even when the data is now left your data center how is that being communicated one of our providers has uh, th- their whole system all their um redundant databases are connected with uh, proprietary fiber so they're not utilizing anybody else's services to make those interconnections so if you need um you have a, a primary data center is on a eastern power grid and your secondary backup is on a central power grid. The eastern power grid goes off. Now you need to, to switch over to your backup, to your, to your hot site. Um, is that interchange of data something that's being mitigated by AT&T or is it something that the, the data center provider themselves have? That becomes one of those areas where um, the more that you own of that network, uh, the, the less the risk tends to be.
2: Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. Now here's a potentially triggering question that um, might create a little controversy, which is why I love the question uh, and leave it to Third Stage Consulting and our our team at Third Stage would be the ones to ask it uh, over on YouTube, but this is uh, true or false, Eric and Brad, cloud solutions are more expensive than on-prem solutions. Let
0: the debate begin. I would say, well, I I mean, I would start with, uh, yes. I would say that if you are looking to do an on-premise solution with um, your own team members, you can buy hardware, buy software, um, employ FTEs for a lower cost than you can have a third-party provider do that. I would say that uh, I would say that's a, a fair statement. I'm not gonna fight that statement. Now, if you go and kind of broaden total cost of ownership, okay, that becomes your next question. Um, do you increase your risk factor by doing it that way if uh, your and your risk of course can be uh permeability to digital threats loss loss of people and attrition all those things we've talked about there are things that increase the cost of ownership um scalability uh do you have the ability to scale down costs if you have a, a slowdown in business or scale up costs or scale up uh resources if you need uh extra resources due to growth without a big effort to try now and get those costs. Cause that incurs more now that you're, you know, the, the effort it requires to scale up a business is, is cost incurred. Um, one of the things that cloud provides, and we have certain customers who have seasonal businesses. So they're, they're like, I need these resources during the peak season. I need less during the slow season. Can you dial that up and down? Yes, we can. So we write that into some of our contracts so that as things come down, you get fewer resources. As things go up, you get higher that those are of course things that are um, so I would say that if if you're looking for uh, just simple budgetary numbers, you're probably going to beat that. Um- now, it all depends, too, on some of the things that, that um, what the vendors themselves are providing and the, the customer that you're working with. We found, um, what's the other thing in the technical service? I got people always chasing me with Moore's Law, right? The idea that the capacity of, of circuits is improving at this rate such that costs should be reducing. And yes, that, you see that working in practice, that the cost of cloud um, right now is is considerably lower than it was five years ago. And you see customers are on like a three to five server replacement. Cycle. So every five years, we'll have a conversation with a customer. Is is it time to replace those servers now with the cloud? And we've had a lot of surprise from folks in terms of, oh, well, five years ago, it was this much. Now it's this much. And that those numbers continue to um, decline. So I say the costs are getting closer and closer in check and making the cost reason to not go in one direction uh, less and less strong for a lot of people based on the the auxiliary benefits that we've talked about.
2: Yeah. And it it seems like A big part of this, just the pure financial side of it, too, is you're shifting the balance sheet or you're shifting costs from being a a capitalized or depreciated cost that's an asset that gets depreciated over time versus now that that's the on-prem model. But now with cloud, you're shifting those assets off the balance sheet. and Now you just have an ongoing operating expense. Um, So from a CFO perspective, that could be good good or bad, depending on what you're trying to accomplish uh, financially. Um, which is why uh, Kyler made the comment over on YouTube. Um, She was surprised that we didn't just come out and say it depends, which I I think is kind of what you're saying is it does depend on (laughs) on kind of what what you consider as part of the cost of uh, the real total cost of ownership, as you mentioned, of cloud versus on-prem. You have to take all that stuff into account, short-term, long-term, the tangible, the intangible benefits. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you, though, is as you were talking about it, though, and as we've been talking about, you know, ownership of data and where it resides and ownership of applications, things like that. In recent years, as you know, a lot of bigger vendors, like especially the two that come to mind are SAP and Microsoft. Um, SAP and Microsoft have sort of drawn a line in the sand and said, guess what customers that are using on premise systems, you have to be off those systems by 2025 or 27 or whatever date that ends up slipping to. Um, and so it's it's sort of creating a sense of panic in the industry of like oh wow this system I've been using for 20 years now they're not going to support it in three years from now so we better do something, mm-hmm. and it it in some ways it reminds me of extortion uh, because you're sort of forcing an organization to sort of completely revamp their their systems that are running their business. But I guess fast forwarding you know 10 years from now let's say all these companies move to the cloud the data the applications everything's hosted somewhere else. Are organizations losing Um, a certain amount of leverage or are they even more beholden to the whims of software vendors and cloud providers? Because now they not only are they providing the software, but they are hosting the software, the data, the workflows, the functionality, all that stuff now is hosted by a vendor in the cloud. So I guess Mm -hmm. does it it create an unfair, unlevel playing field for organizations now?
0: I think that's definitely a a risk. Uh, I would say I kind of differentiate, say, Microsoft on one end and, say, um, SAP on the other, uh, just because when I see Microsoft, they've, um, in general, made the transition pretty solid in terms of using, say, 365 to replace uh, Outlook servers and such so that you're not having, uh, you're not doing that those same old uh, models and, and um, the fact that, you know, hosting local email servers has become something that was, was routinely such a, a in the butt to do that the migration in in many ways wasn't as hard plus the fact that they've still provided um kind of desktop application support um that provides similar uh look and feel for the end users uh, no one i think no one that i know enjoys working in a web version of microsoft word versus the on-premise desktop application now if they can get the back end to be such that it's syncing up and saving for you and all that good stuff now that's just great because now you've increased your functionality because now you can access that same document from anywhere and transmit those and share them easier than than ever before so i think i think those things end up being um helpful so if, if a, a vendor is actually Helping the customer and making them more productive in the process—it's a lot easier sell. Um, in the enterprise system, I see—I uh, you know, feel that being a little harder squeeze, where the, the systems being offered aren't necessarily comparable to the systems they're replacing, and I see uh, for customers that can be a real frustration. Uh, The other thing that I think is really kind of a a bit of a a field leveler in this industry is the degree to which integrations are becoming more and more a thing that is commonplace. You have so many tools that that focus specifically on uh, suite-to-suite integrations, the ability to pass data over here to over there, which I think allows for a lot of upstarts to come in and try to compete against some of the bigger players such that, if uh, if these bigger players overplay their hand, they'll find themselves with a, a significant amount of competition that is ready to uh, you know offset that. So when I was ten years ago, Microsoft Project was the de facto project management tool. Now you have sixteen thousand you know project management tools, Smart Sheets, and this and that. And now even Microsoft is using Teams as a shareware tool to try to you know do project support. I think it's very quickly happening that that customers are. are Competing vendors, uh, entrepreneurs will find a, a hole in the market where someone is overplaying their hand and look to fill that void by providing a, a more robust solution with better service. So I think there's I think that that tends to level the playing field often, maybe if not in the immediate sense, in the in the medium term.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I had never thought of that. And I guess if you look at history and what some of the recurring trends in history in our space uh, are, You would have, uh, for example, you have, uh, you know, 20 years ago when Salesforce and Workday first sort of burst onto the scene, they were really doing what you said, which is sort of attacking the vulnerabilities of Mm -hmm. these larger, you know, tier one ERP software providers. So they come in and say, we're not going to do, we're not going to try and be everything to everyone like SAP. Mm -hmm. What we're going to do is we're going to create a really good CRM or a really good human capital management system that really chips away at a weakness in those big systems. So I, I think you're right. I think with the with the rate at which technology changes and incumbents come and go, and and the technological landscape shifts, I think you I think you're right. It makes a lot of sense that you would have upstart competitors that come in and, and really, as you say, uh, look at where vendors are overplaying their hand and provide a better solution, a lower cost solution, or whatever the case may be for for customers. I think the hard part now is the we don't know who those <laughs> who those people are. Right. Yeah who's going to be the one to, to do that or to, you know, give us something that's a little bit more reasonable. Um, you know, here's, it kind of leads me to a, to a comment here. Another comment from Gassan on YouTube says, these tier one providers are hijacking us by setting their rules and I ain't paying the ransomware. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, organizations should just be aware of because it may not be ransomware per se, but I think there could be a day in the future where if organizations do overplay their hand or, or software vendors overplay their hand, Um, they organizations could be in a position where I have to do what they want that all my data and applications are in the cloud. The switching costs are really high now. It's a lot harder now for me to pull everything out of their cloud solution and go to another cloud solution. And so they can do anything from, you know, raise prices, the subscription fees to other, you know, other means that, that really, um, you don't have a lot of leverage. So I think I look forward to seeing who those upstart providers are that might be able to, um, you know, help out with that. it kind of leads me to a question then that, that's sort of a softball for you, Brad, here, I, th- I think, uh, from Kyler. And, and speaking of vendors, is there a vendor that does cloud s- services really well? And so, in other words, are there, you know, maybe not just doing it well, but there are good options for organizations that maybe you're skeptical of cloud or they're not quite sure if they want to move to the cloud or maybe they don't want to deal with a really big, oversized tech companies that are providing some of these solutions. What, what are some of the other examples or options that are out there?
0: Right. So when when we talked about tier one, my brain immediately went. I, I equate when it comes to cloud tier one and big three. So you talk about you know the big three, Amazon, Google, and Azure as kind of the, the big dinosaurs in the field, kind of stomping around. And uh, yeah, very hard to work with in many ways because they have tier pricing structures and complexity factors and egress and, and ingress fees and such things that make them very difficult to work with. Underneath that, I see a, a fair bit of uh, upstarts who are are um, a middle tier of service that has breadth and depth necessary in terms of uh, data centers that are located as a, as part of a farm and they exist on uh, power grids that are disconnected for redundancy purposes and they offer all the things that the big three offer, but they have a much more flexible and engaging work model so that you can consume resources in much more flexible ways, and they have um, technical staff that are much more engaged and are earning your business. Um, I, we found that, that's why we ended up partnering with one of those firms, a company called US Signal, because we liked the way they did business much more than any of the big three providers. And we haven't found that to be a, a barrier to entry with pretty much anyone, Is um, the Sheen that comes working with Amazon Web services or what have you um, just doesn't seem to be there anymore. Uh, a lot of customers are are much more skeptical of some of those big players just because of you know outages, challenges. I know some people said to us after I watched Amazon's The Rings of Power, I knew I was never going to use AWS. I don't know how those two <laughs> things are correlated. I, I'll take it though. I, I'm more of a I'm a more of a Peter Jackson man myself. But um, I would say that certainly is that there's a layer of of providers at that next tier who are providing comparable services with much better service levels that are worth exploring.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of your your business model at Estes, right, is to really, you know, play in that mid-market and provide a, you know, another option other than the really big providers. Although U.S. Signal is not a small company by any means. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Yeah, sure. Oh, time for the shameless company plug. Right. So Estes Group, (laughs) you know, for us, we're a cloud provider in that tertiary manner is that we're carving up resources of others and presenting them to the customer. We're serving that kind of middle middle layer um, to folks who don't have the, the technical chops to go out and carve out those resources themselves. They work with an intermediary like us. So we take those, carve them up according to the resource needs of a customer and offer kind of tailored cloud solutions. And I think for us, you know, for our customers, I think that gives them a nice uh point of contact and because we have kind of the business side in addition to the technology that that we can treat their technology as a a strategic business investment and not just uh blinking lights right absolutely so as we're coming up on
2: time here which has been a great conversation it it is flying by because I didn't get through most of the questions I had for you uh but we had a lot of great alternate questions here but um what in general if, if I'm an organization that's thinking about getting started on this whole cloud Um, or outsourcing, IT outsourcing journey? How do I get started? I mean, where do I begin the journey?
0: So the idea of dipping your toes in the cloud for me is often kind of delineating internally. What are some things that... Uh, aren't mission-critical right now but would be nice-to-haves, and trying to figure out if the nice-to-haves work well. I think backup and disaster recovery is a natural area to do that. If you have on-site backups and you'd like to move to an off-site backup, that's a great way of trying to enter like the DRAS field and have that as kind of one of your first steps into a broader cloud solution. And uh, you start to carve out what, what some of those look like. Uh, is endpoint security as a service something that would be better managed outside than inside? I would start with some of those things. If I was just trying to see kind of how does this business model work and does it work well for us? Does the idea, as you'd mentioned, CapEx versus Op- OpEx uh, financial accounting, start to see how that hits the general ledger and whether that hits in a way that that you like i would say start with some of those easy handoffs that are are, are the most on the far end of, of things that are outsourceable and i normally see endpoint and, and dras as some of those things and then kind of work your way inward to see from there is there another you know place that you would like to go
2: yeah so in other words you don't need to go all in on the cloud no. all all at once one big bang rip the band-aid off sort of thing you can
0: kind of ease into yeah. it to- yeah, this kind of digital transformation can definitely be incremental in nature, and uh, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing kind of proposition. And it, and it isn't for, I would say, any customer that we have; they're all at some place on that on that uh, the number line in terms of how far they've gone. I think that's a a good thing for someone to understand that you don't have to be giving up the giving away the farm in order to uh, take this on. Right.
2: Okay. Thanks, Brad. That was a great conversation. A lot of good lessons learned. Great to have you on the show again. We've got some uh, debriefs and takeaways that we're going to chat about with Kyler here in just a moment. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
6: download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
2: Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 89, where you can find new episodes of our show every Wednesday. Be sure to check us out on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Spotify, etc. Wherever you listen to podcasts, be sure to subscribe to us there or watch us on uh, one of the other platforms as well. So Kyler, we just had Brad on the show again, talking about IT outsourcing, managed services, cloud, all that good stuff. What were some of your takeaways and observations from that conversation?
3: Well, first of all, I I hope that, you know, he can provide some samples of that amazing sausage that is obviously like in deeply in his lineage. Yes. So that's very exciting. (laughs) Yeah.
2: He's the only person if I had to guess, if I had to anticipate what guest would take a uh, metaphor that I use about making sausage and actually talk about a literal understanding of it, it would be Brad. He'd probably be the one guest that we've had on that would be the one to do that. So I thought that's pretty funny.
3: Yeah, well, he, I have a theory that he knows everything about everything. Like, he, Have you ever met one of those people that it's like, how do you know? Like you're not only probably the smartest person I've ever met, but also like you have all of this like historical knowledge about things. Um, and it's also really just fun to be around. So overall, we're, we're lucky to be able to learn from Brad.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I agree.
3: So I, I think he touched on a lot of really interesting things. And what I liked about this conversation is it it was um, pretty technical when it came into details about the cloud and IT outsource, outsourcing. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of dive into the idea of kind of physical versus, um, you know, SaaS based risks. And he talks a lot about things like data centers and where your actual data is physically stored and how that works and it's protected. And that's just not not something that I think a lot of people understand that that cloud still has that need for being able to have those physical components to your cloud-based software strategy.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I always forget that too, you know, when we're talking about cloud um, and, it, and it reminds me of uh, recently, I went to a big data center for uh, a company that had that had a cloud uh, managed service hosted data center here in uh, the Denver area, which is where uh, you and I are based close to Denver, in Colorado, in the United States. But I remember going there and it was really hard to find because it wasn't marked well. the security was super tight. and um, and I got lost trying to find it, which I get lost going anywhere. so it's that's not a uh, that alone doesn't say much. But the fact that even when I got to the right address, it wasn't marked. You had to go through all these hoops to get through security. You know, you really have to lock down kind of the the uh, where you know the physical um, security piece of it, and even just getting around throughout the building was highly secured. So it's not just about securing data, which I think is what most organizations think about. They worry about the hackers and the people from other countries that might be hacking into your trying to hack into your system, and that is a risk. But it's also the physical stuff, whether it's a hurricane or a uh, a, a weather event that could ruin your data center or uh, you know, some sort of nefarious actor sneaking into the data center to bring down the systems. Although I have no idea why you'd want to do that, but it could happen.
3: Well, and best of luck to you, because I too went to that data center and I was like, are we going to prison or are we going to a data center? What What are we doing? Because That's they're right. very were
2: there. Right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We filmed the video there, actually. Oh, we I'm glad
3: there. it was so memorable of an experience <laughs> for you.
2: <laughs> I was just so enthralled <laughs> by the security. And then we filmed a really cool video there and it yeah. had a really cool backdrop, you know, because you can see the All the servers in the background. is pretty cool.
3: Yeah. And great video. Um, It was from um, Flex essential, which is here. um, But we talked to their CIO about data management. So if you do do have more questions, those are available on our YouTube channel. Great conversation um, with with them and and see Foster as well, who's one of our business leaders here. But building on that, we kind of talk about, um, and I feel like all of my questions were focused on risks. So there's so many benefits, obviously, in moving to cloud technology, which we even talk through in, in our Hot Topics. But just understanding it, I feel like is a very complex ordeal. So I want to kind of talk to you about you, you and third stage team are an expert in software selection. So understanding those integrations or those weak points when it comes to things like cybersecurity or even business disruption, those types of things. How, when, at what point should you think about that when you are looking at embarking upon a digital transformation?
2: Well, you kind of have to look at it as you're evaluating the software. I mean, it's it's really um, it's really one of those things where you're not just picking a software; you're picking how you're going to deploy it. You know, where is it going to be hosted? Is it going to be a cloud solution? Is it going to be on premise? Is it uh, private cloud, public cloud, some sort of hybrid? Um, those are all infrastructure types of decisions that you need to make, largely because it's going to affect your cost and your implementation timeline and all that stuff. So. You do need to address it there, along with other factors like who's your system integrator going to be and all that good stuff. But I think the one thing you have to look at is just you sort of have to look past the um, the economic incentives that software vendors have. And there, there's a really heavy economic incentive for them to sell you cloud, especially if it's software as a service, you know, multi-tenant software as a service cloud based solutions because they make more money on it. It's higher margin. It's more predictable. Investors love it. It drives up their stock price. So there's a really heavy economic incentive to convince you. And when I say you, I mean the the, the organization, the, those, those of you listening to the show. Um, I, there's a high incentive to convince you that you should move to the cloud. Um, and you just have to look past that. And it, it may be the right answer, but it may not be. Or, you know, multi-tenant SaaS may be the right answer, maybe not. Maybe there's some other option that's better, better for you. So I think just having that agnostic viewpoint and uh, analysis is really important.
3: And even the expertise of, you know, this is how we've seen it done before and that experience, I, I assume, must really benefit the overall strategic approach to ensure that you you're, you understand what that migration means and how you're going to functionally um, execute.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's so many dependencies in an implementation plan that are dependent on how you're deploying the technology and physically and, and uh, all that you know, all that stuff as far as where the, where the software is going to be hosted and all that.
3: Absolutely. Well, I highly recommend, um, to our audience attending some of the Astis groups webinars. Um, I did pop a few of their links in, um, the chat on our YouTube page and I'll do so as, as this is live streaming as well. Um, but you just learn a lot from that group and that really technical subject. They do a really good job of kind of, putting it in layman's terms so that you're able to understand that use universal language around cloud. Because a lot of times, even what we've seen from our clients, especially in the medium to small business space, that, that, um, overall bottleneck between communication between system integrator and client, they don't understand what they're asking for because who would um, if that's not your day-to-day um, opportunity? So a lot of times we come in kind of as a translator, I like to say, and help them understand and and make sure that this investment is uh is maximizing their business value so they understand that they're actually getting what they're investing in as far as the software and the new processes um, on that side so what a great interview and i think it goes really well with our third segment which is kind of the basics around software selection and optimizing that process
2: yeah it's a great point and as we listen to this clip or this presentation of adam presenting at our recent uh, Stratosphere conference, our online virtual conference, which you can access at stratosphere2022.com. Um, it's interesting, you know, as you think about evaluating potential applications, as, as Adam will talk about, it's also interesting to think of, think, it, think of it through the lens of what we just talked about. You know, how are you gonna host it? Where's it gonna be hosted? And certainly, you know, as Adam will talk about, certain vendors are more open to multiple deployment options than others. So for example, if you go with a NetSuite, you know, NetSuite, for example, or Workday. Those are software-as-a-service-based solutions that were built in the cloud. They're built as -as software-as-a-service, so that's that's your one option. You have other vendors, though, that provide on-premise and cloud solutions. You have others that are trying to phase out all their on-prem stuff to go to the cloud. So you just have to understand, you know, what is the roadmap for the type of technology you want to deploy for that specific vendor that you might be uh, evaluating. So to help us unpack all this stuff about uh, evaluating potential software systems for your business or your organization. We're going to have Adam Cheatham on the show here in just a moment. He's a director of strategy and transformation here at Third Stage Consulting in the U.S. He's based in the United States as well on our U.S.-based team. And uh, he's going to give this presentation that he gave at Stratosphere. We'll play a clip from it and we'll debrief on it afterwards. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
4: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
2: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 89. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're excited to play you this clip from our Stratosphere 2022 conference that we recently hosted. It was an online virtual conference that you can, by the way access at stratosphere 2022.com. We had uh, several different tracks and workshops and speakers in that uh, session. But among those, there's one in particular we want to play for you here today, uh, partly because it's very relevant to the audience, but also it's just a good it's a good presentation. And it's from Adam Cheatham here at Third Stage Consulting, giving a presentation on software selection best practices. So let's roll the presentation with Adam.
1: Let me just a second. I'll get my screen up and run here and we'll start talking. Can you see this?
3: Yes, we can see it.
1: All right. So we'll put it in presentation. So my name is Adam Cheatham, I'm Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage Consulting Group. Um, we're here to talk today about software selection and evaluation, right? So the overall goal of this session is to talk a little bit about some of the, the things that can help you select software successfully and, and ways of thinking and approaching your, your software selection and evaluation, this type of methodology core CRP also applies to all kinds of other different types of enterprise software systems. um, Things CRM, HCM, MES, all those different types of software packages. If you're looking to evaluate and select one, you can use this type. When we think about um, raw software in general, um, the way that I really like to approach this is first in thinking about from a digital strategy alignment perspective. Um, It's really important that when we think about this we're thinking holistically and having a digital strategy to point you in the direction that you want to go is a really key component of of the software selection cycle, if you will. Um, One of the things that people tend to skip to is, of course, because we're talking about selecting software is these these two bars in, in the center here, enterprise applications and solution architecture. Let's just find a software and plug it in. That's all we had to do, right? Um, and that's not really the case, because when you start thinking about software selection, I always like to approach it more of a fashion of why are you, th- why are you selecting new software, right? Selecting a, 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 and implementing ERP, for example, um, is, is a big task. It's a big job. It's a big project takes quite a long time and a lot of people will, will put in a lot of effort to make that pro- that type of a project successful. Um, so when you start thinking about why you might doing, do something like this, why you might orient the resources of your organization towards um, an enterprise application deployment, you start to think about why. And generally, um, we got all kinds of good reasons for selecting and implementing software and they all center around the idea that we need to be better at this. Our processes are broken here. Um, you know, we're looking to become more effective and efficient in these areas, or, uh, you know, we've outgrown our systems to the point where we can no longer operate the way that we want to, as we continue to grow and scale. All of these are, indicative of process needs, right? Um, And as you think about the answers to that, why are we implementing ERP or CRM or any type of software? Really the answer gets down to because I have a business process need that isn't being currently met. So the way that we like to start thinking about it first then is about your business processes, right? Software should fit for those. and as you start to think about your business processes, you start with current state and then you start to diagnose a future state on where you wanna go. This is the, the conversation about, I have broken processes today and then I'm trying to get better for tomorrow by you creating a, a, um, the opportunity to use a new tool. So the process is really the, the root cause or the, the reason behind this enterprise application deployment. What, when you start thinking about improving your processes, then you should start thinking about the people that administer them. Um, what is their What are their thoughts? What are their pain points? And what is their readiness to adopt a new tool? Um, some organizations are are ready for it. Some people in some organizations are ready for it for sure. Um, they they see the value in in what a new software package can bring. Um, they are experiencing quite a lot of pain in their existing processes. So. You have a contingency that is certainly into this idea of uh, implementing a new software package. There are often also others who question the idea, like, why would we do something that's difficult? Uh, the so- the software we have today works just fine, and w- you know what would be the purpose in going through the effort of changing? Um, when you start to consider the needs of your people in this conversation you start to really go down the path of good, strong organizational change management. And when we think about organizational change management, we're really thinking about people enablement, right? How do we enable our people to adopt um, a new software package and accept that new software package is a part of their life? Because really um, when you change software, you're really ch- changing processes and that's gonna have a dramatic impact on your people. You know the third stage we talk about you know old processes and new software just are expensive new pro- expensive old processes and getting the new processes designed and getting your people to administer them in a new system are two key components in making sure mm-hmm. that once you're live on software your uh, your adoption rates are high and you're fully enabling your your teams to actually use that software to achieve those process goals that you have. Now, when you think about enterprise applications, um, you're starting to think about it as a tool, as a digital enabler of uh, your people to administer the processes that they do do day in and day out at a higher rate of effectiveness and efficiency. This is really the appropriate relationship between the business and technology um, process, people, and technology. You start with process. You figure and you figure out what those are going to be. Then you get your people oriented around what those processes are going to be and what their new tools are going to look like in the future. And then you find the right applications for accomplishing those goals. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, with a with a recent client talking about having the right tool for the right job. Right. That's really what we're thinking about here. And having the right tool for the right job really means knowing what the job is first and then devising a a method of using a tool to accomplish that job with a team that is on board and enabled and trained to do so. From there, the solution architecture kind of becomes a a conversation of, all right, now we know what our, our software is for enabling these process goals we need, our people are ready um, now we got to figure out how to deploy this thing, and we got to get it onto some type of a platform, whether that's um, whether that's a cloud infrastructure or uh, uh, or a software as a service or a hosted on premise. Um, those are all things that are a part of your architecture that are going to have an impact there, um, and you want to consider what the consequences of those types of decisions are, because um, it will have an impact on your on your architecture on the whole. How do you integrate systems that aren't going away? Because um, for the most part when you implement an enterprise software system, you don't really replace everything with one system. That's pretty uncommon. Um, it's it's more, uh, more regular to have, uh, even at the ERP level, a number of um, additional applications that want we'll to integrate with the app, whether it's um, an EDI platform or a tax platform or um, an HCM payroll platform. All those things are common integrations that we need to consider. And as we start thinking about architecture and those integrations, we wanna start orienting our our minds towards how do we accomplish this task of pulling out the old system or systems and not breaking the the, uh, the ones that will remain uh, and need to be integrated with the new software system. So we wanna make sure that we get that right. From there, once you get that real relationship between the uh, process and technology in the right order, and you put it on a platform and, and create integrations that are strong and are in uh, past data appropriately, business intelligence and, and analytics become an effective window into your business. You start spending a lot less time digging through your data uh, data warehouse, trying to find the data that tells the story that you're trying to tell. Um, you know, you hear the uh, the saying, you know, uh, you can make use statistics to say anything. Um, you can use data to say anything. And if you're a large enough organization, there's a good chance that, um, you know, the more digging you do for data, the more you can make it say what you think you want it to. And that's not really an accurate, well, it's not always an accurate view into the actual health and and functions of your business. When you get your process aligned appropriately in your software, knowing which process is up front, and then finding the right software that enables it, business intelligence and analytics become an effective window into your the health of your business because they tell you more effectively what it is your is, is actually happening out there without you having to dig through you know, tables and tables and lines and lines and lines of data writing all kinds of different types of SQL queries, running table joins and all that stuff to try to create a compelling story. The story is there because it's been created to do that. The last thing that is important about digital strategy in general is to think about it from a uh, perspective of saying if these are the, the work streams that are necessary to consider when you are working through your software evaluation and selection, if you let all of these work streams go in the direction that they that they naturally go in by themselves, they will go in different directions. It takes an intent to keep these types of work streams aligned together in a complementary fashion, and that's where project quality assurance and the selection side of things comes together. I like to think of it more as project governments. How do I make sure that we are continuing to emphasize the right relationship between our processes and our technology, where our processes become the front end of the selection and the technology becomes the enabler of those processes?
2: We're in the middle of a presentation here with Adam Cheatham talking about software selection best practices. We have a lot more to get to, but first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Give me the
6: sense to wonder.
2: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 89. We're here in the middle of a conversation with Adam Cheatham from Third Stage Consulting, talking about software selection best practices. Let's jump back into the
1: conversation. Another key part of how I like to think about software selection is as a part of implementation readiness, right? Um, Software selection projects are the type that are designed to create more work, right? I'm going to select a software system so then I can go and implement it. Um, which is a much larger job for uh, for the organization. So as we think about implementing software in this um, this real strong um, this very large project, really that will have an, a strong impact on the organization on the whole, we start to think about implementation readiness. And the third stage, our our overall selection methodology. Um, is a step-by-step program that is focused on of course selecting software effectively um, but i like to think of it as also a part of implementation readiness um, as you start to talk about implementing software uh, you want to get some things right so that you're ready to implement when you when you sign a contract it doesn't take long from the point that you sign a contract with the with a vendor and a system integrator for them to be ready to show up and get to work uh, when they show up and get to work as I'm uh, as I'm sure many of you are aware, they're ready to go and they start going and if you're not ready for them, you you spend a lot of time playing catch up and playing from behind. Um, our implementation readiness framework allows us to help our clients and um, organizations like your guys to be ready for their implementation um, when they sign that contract. So, uh, this is kind of a, a view of some of that readiness methodology and some of the the very key and important steps to becoming readiness, ready for an implementation itself. I've highlighted in green the um, the functions of implementation readiness that are commonly addressed in software selection. Up front, you have strategic and executive alignment. Where there are a number of opportunities for things like executive education, what are, what are we doing? What is, uh, for example, what is ERP, um, and what are we going to get out of it? You know, having uh, executives un- understand what the goal and purpose of this is, isn't is a key important part of gaining their alignment and putting them in a position to be strong advocates for the implementation as well as strong contributors. Um, We'll talk about what uh, what we do in the selection cycle for executive alignment and things like that but the overall goal is to think about strategy of what it is this software is supposed to do and and create a strategy for uh, achieving that starting with software selection from a people perspective like we talked about before you got uh, uh, um, actually let's talk about operational readiness first um, from a process perspective, like we talked about before, you want to start with processes um, at the front end of the conversation. What are we trying to uh, accomplish when we are implementing new software from a process perspective? Really what we're looking for is operational improvement, right? So those uh, we want to think about how ready our operations are, uh, where are our processes in in greatest need of improvement, and what does that look like? Um, Third stage, we like to dive deeper into those strategic processes and get a, um, an understanding of the level of complexity as well as the level of criticality to the business of each process. Some processes that aren't quite so um, so heavily involved in your uh, your competitive advantages in the marketplace and things like that, um, you don't need to go into as much detail because if they're not as important to the actual the actual system selection and, and implementation, then we want to make sure that their functions are covered, but we don't want to spend too much time focusing on the things that aren't as high priority. Um, many organizations, for example, are uh, looking to achieve uh, um, manufacturing and procurement efficiencies through deployment of VRP. So we'll focus on those areas, especially for organizations that are more focused on those functional areas from a, a base operational uh, need. Other organizations are looking for more business intelligence and, and more, uh, a greater view into the, the f- financial foundation of their organization. So we'll focus on finance um, at a deeper level there. And those will be the, the areas that really drive the selection. Then you have your validation of requirements, and you really wanna look at operational gaps. Um, not only operational gaps that you have today at your organization, but as you start to think about software, what operational gaps there are in the software packages that you're considering. Um, these days, you don't find a, a lot of software packages that are the perfect fit. Um, the, the idea of zero customization is really a myth. You know, there will be gaps in whatever software package you choose but we wanna make sure that we're thinking about it from a perspective of what gaps can we handle and what gaps can we not? So that's part of the operational readiness side of it. And then having a plan for accommodating those when we know what it is we're gonna need to accomplish differently than with the new software itself. The people readiness side of it from a people readiness assessment, um, we like to, uh, to survey the organization and get a strong understanding from the people involved in the processes, especially the ones that are going to change the most, uh, most significantly so that we know about their readiness. That question of uh, why are we doing this and, and, and what is the purpose of this, this large project that will be um, rather difficult for many people. Asking those questions and understanding the answers to them are key components of making sure that we're ready for software selection itself and the implementation of it. Um, As we move into technical readiness, uh, you start thinking about where we are with things like data um, and things like architecture and i'll talk about what our solution architecture assessment looks like in in a moment, but the idea here is, um, I always like to. um, Tell my clients you don't want data to become your critical path in your implementation. That's a a recipe for a disaster. Um, Because what ends up happening, if you do allow for that to happen, is all the software gets built, that's all ready to go. And the system integrator says, we're ready to go live. And you say, well, no, we're not, because I've got three months more worth of data work before before we can go live. So I got to continue to keep my data, get my data cleaned up. And then your system integrator waits and your software system waits. If you wait long enough, uh, security patches deployed to your new software, updates deploy to your new software. And these are all things that need to be um, reconfigured in the software system. So your implementation kind of continues on and the, and the work continues on and the endpoints continue to change and move. So you still have to maintain an, an ERP effectively in a test environment and keep it up to date in a test environment while you're trying to get your data in line and that's not really what we want to have to have happen so when we started thinking about data up front we started asking those questions what does our data look like how clean is it how ready is it to migrate into into a new system and how much data do we want in that new system
3: yeah and adam speaking of kind of that that vendor alignment or that integration when it comes to those relationships i know you touched on that a little but we have a question on LinkedIn, which I think is a really good one. Um, so it's it's more of a comment, but I'm gonna kind of turn it into a question. When it comes to the RFI or RFP procurement process in the context of the selection approach, do you need to um, do specific homework without um, suffering from analysis paralysis?
1: That's a great question. And I'll, I'll get into more detail about some more specific answers to that, but the answer really is there's a balance, right? Um, You'll write requirements for your software selection and those will go into your RFP. Um, We're not talking field by field level requirements. We're talking requirements at the functional level. And you wanna make sure that you're covering your critical functions, but at the same time, you don't wanna spend too much time thinking about um, all the teeny tiny little things that you do once a year, right? Mm Um, so if you're focused on the things that you're doing once a year that take five minutes, that's the, uh, that's where you start to get into the analysis paralysis type of area. But you, but you do want to make sure that you have coverage of, again, those critical and complex areas that are the most unique to your organization. So um, in the RFP itself, you'll want to represent that and make sure that your system integrator um, that you're considering is aligned with what it is you're trying to accomplish and understands your, your needs and your requirements at, um, at an appropriate level. When, you, when we start thinking about software development, the purpose of requirements is to um, create the opportunity to devise a specific solution. Um, it's really supposed to drive the, the creation of a, of a software solution. At the selection level, it's different. Um, we're actually saying, I have a need and we're looking for somebody to provide us with a solution that exists. So here's my need, show me what you have so that we can test drive it, we can check it out, we can demo it and, and see see whether or not that's an appropriate fit for our day-to-day life. The actual solutions themselves will vary from vendor to vendor, and that's really what we're looking for. We're going shopping for software. So that's a really good question. Um, I'll get into a little bit more specificity on it here, um, actually on the next slide. Uh, itself. So um, the last thing I want to mention about implementation readiness uh, as it pertains to software selection is a software selection is a really great opportunity to start thinking about your projects governance for your implementation. Um, You know, during the software selection process, you'll have uh, a number of folks that will be pulled into that. I like to have a core team of uh, of folks with each of my clients to Um, represent a cross-functional look at what it is the business needs. and that way, when we're talking about improvements, we have folks upstream and downstream of each other who can collaboratively consider what it is the benefits of of improvements will be. Um, And Then ERP and enterprise-wide software is really um, oriented towards creating a, a massive shift in your organization and is when you start to change things that dramatically, you start to create risk. And we wanna talk about risk early and often so that we can start thinking about how it is we manage it. To continue on to answer some of those additional questions that um, around requirements and those types of things, we'll start thinking a little bit about the actual software selection and evaluation process. Um, On the whole, you have really three chunks of work that go into the software selection itself. You have first and foremost, the current state side of things. And as you're kicking off your project and get all of your project management uh, chops in place, um, your current state is to talk about what it is we're doing today and how it is we're doing that so that we can target the areas for improvement that we want to. Um, A key component of that, of course, is the executive strategy side of things. When we're considering software as an enabler of the business, um, we wanna make sure that we understand not only what the business does well from a competitive advantages in the marketplace perspective, but also the organizational and operational goals of, of the business at the executive level. If we're gonna think about software as enabling where it is you wanna go in the future, we wanna start thinking about what that future looks like. What are, what are those goals that we're trying to achieve that we can't today because we don't have the right software package or that we need to be able to continue to achieve um, so that when we remove the the old software package and put in a new one, we're not um, we're not losing functionality and we're not losing our ability to operate as a business is who we are. That second row box is there is all about devising a future state. What am I going to look like in software in the future? And this is where you start thinking about those future state requirements that support that RFI RFP process. Um, we wanna think, um, to a certain extent, we wanna think blue sky with this, right? What could be, what are all the great things that we can get out of software? Especially when we're thinking about ERP, Um, there are some goals that you'll have, yes, but we're not thinking about just solving our problems for tomorrow. We're thinking about uh, solving problems and anticipating problems and uh, farther ahead into the future. So when we think future state, we wanna start talking about how we wanna look, what are our potential improvements and what are the areas that we wanna be able to do, do, to do better and just as much what are the things that we we'll still have to be able to do in the future that we do today. Part of your future state is inevitably bound up in, in, in your current state in one way or another. Uh, most organizations um, and at least none that I know of have really used ERP implementations or any type of enterprise software as an opportunity to overhaul their um, their value proposition to the customer. If you, if you manufacture widgets today, you're going to continue to do that tomorrow. If you're a professional services company today, you're going to continue to be that tomorrow. So we want to think about making sure that we take our current state, we don't lose functionality, but we do gain some of those great um, opportunities for improvement in, in software itself. Uh, solution architecture co- becomes that component of what goes away and what stays and how do we make sure that our data is ready right i like to do a systems inventory of what um what systems are out there and what do they do um so when we start thinking about functions that are um, going to be pulled into the new system we can th- we, we know where those functions are accomplished in the actual existing systems today and what systems can go away and what systems can't so that we can plan for the integrations that we're gonna have to build in the future. Um, a lot of times those integrations can come with um, additional conversations around integration platforms as a service, for example. Um, NetSuite often integrates with Shopify's through Soligo. Um, So when we talk to a lot of clients who are heavy in Shopify and, um, and are going to end up selecting NetSuite Soligo becomes a part of the conversation or other connectors that are like Soligos that are integration platforms as a service. If you leave that thought out, um, you'll find out that you need that integration platform at one point or another, um, and you wanna have it scoped into your selection so that you know that, uh, you know, that's going to be a component of your costs and implementation. So when we're thinking about those software evaluations in that short list that we're gonna come to for a couple of vendors to send our RFPs out and run demos with. We are thinking about the package holistically and what it is we're going to need to keep and what it is is going to need to go away. That last row boxes is all about the software itself. Now that we've talked about who we are today and who we want to be in the future and what that might look like. Let's start. Let's go. It's time to go shopping. Notice that the business process side of this is right up front, like we talked about in the, um, the slide before this. And now we're starting to talk about how we f- find the software that fits that best. Um, it's, it is really important to find this, the appropriate software for your business processes. And you can end up spending a lot of money. I've, I've talked to a lot of organizations who come fresh off of an ERP implementation and um, five years later, they want something different. Um, I've got actually several clients in that position right now where they've been on their, their, their new ERP for less than five years and they can't wait to get off it because they, they missed something in their selection. Um, so when we start thinking about that, that relationship between processes and software, uh, we wanna make sure that we're looking far enough into the future into what it is you're gonna need but also closely enough it, it today to know what it is we can't break. But we'll go through an RFP and a demonstration process to, uh, With the RFP ask questions like, um, of course, is this a request for proposal, right? How much does it cost? Um, what are our licensing fees? What are our system integration services uh, costs? Those types of things. Um, and, and what other costs come along with this? Program management, travel, customizations integration platforms all of those things we want to understand in an RFP and one of the common questions that I get from, uh, from some some of our clients is right but so it's just an RFP for an, for an ERP right what if the ERP itself doesn't meet some of our core requirements like why well, I, I expect the system integrators to come to the, to the table with a full solution? Um, if if their ERP system or whatever enterprise system we're considering doesn't meet all of our requirements, I do expect them to have an answer for how it is they will solve for that. So it's not uncommon, for example, for an ERP system to say, we can meet most of your requirements. There are a couple of key areas where you're going to need a third party. Um, We work really well with these guys. And um, so we'd like to bring them to the table and, um, and use them to solve for your requirements. Uh, field service organizations, for example, um, are this is very, very common. Not very many ERP systems out there handle field services very well. They just do operations. So there's a bolt on for things like dispatch, um, you know, and, and, and the, the, the management of truck rolls and things like that. The RFP is also intended to start thinking about that fit for requirements. Does How does your software and proposed solution fit this requirement? Is it out of the box? Is it configurable? Must it be customized? Um, these are all the, you know, the more customization answers you get, the, the more difficult of a solution you have on your hands. But at the end of the day, we want to be able to consider this within context. Um, overall, what we're looking for is an answer to the question, can you do it? Yes or no. That's the, the purpose of the requirements within the RFP. And what that looks like becomes a point, um, and, and the effectiveness of that, the daily fit, daily life type of use, um, comes from the demonstrations uh, itself. So um, the demos give us that view of how well do you do it. Um, and this is where, when you get that, that level of requirements right, um, oh, when you get that level of requirements right uh, in the software uh, evaluation process up front, future state requirement. Um, documentation, you give the the vendors an opportunity to say, I see your needs and this is how our software system does that. And when you have a good uh, comparison there, that's well scripted based on your requirements, that answer to how well can you fit our needs and our daily needs as an organization really starts to come out. So this creates a lot of different variables for how it is we compare software systems and the selection uh, kind of comes out of that itself and comparing how well do you do it, can you do it, yes or no, how much does it cost, how long is it gonna take, and all of those things. Those are areas that we use to create um, a recommendation for software selection.
3: Before we move on, Adam, I wanna get to this great question from Mark on LinkedIn. Um, So how do you evaluate conflicting preferences for different software solutions in a way that doesn't come down to they who shout the loudest? So for example, if you want um, you know, a finance solution, wants one thing, but warehouse wants a completely different solution, how do, how do you manage to that
5: conversation?
1: Um, there are two parts of that. Um, the first part is having a good cross-functional uh, team, that core team that I talked about that you could use for implementation as well, um, with uh, involved in your system selection process, and then the requirements gathering process when finance and operations understand each other's needs upstream and downstream and each other's impacts on on one another, uh, they tend to be far more open to um, a system that fits for all, right? Um, It's not uncommon for us, for example, to find in our requirements workshops that we have clients who have these aha moments where they say, I didn't realize that what I do really causes you that many problems. That's a point of the process workshops where you're starting to identify pain points. And those types of moments are, are, are really important ones where somebody says, I mean, you're really only saving me 10 minutes a day. And, and they go, right, but that takes me three hours to do that. Said, well, then forget it, don't, don't worry about that. We'll find another way of doing it in the new system. And you have a collaborative conversation. Um, The second part of of making sure that you get that uh, conversation right um, to eliminate the just solving the needs of the people who shout the loudest um, is having that strategic alignment up front. What are our priorities here? And um, at the executive level, what are we trying to accomplish? Then when you sit down and say, negotiate, not negotiations, excuse me, finance and operations disagree on software package. And somebody has said, right, well, our purpose here is to really create operational efficiencies on the shop floor so that we can really dig into making sure that um, our production planning and our our demand planning are well-synced. That's not really a finance conversation. And if finance's solution is going to provide less of that dynamic, Nature between the master production schedule and the um, materials requirements planning, it enables you to use your strategy and your executive goals as that lens for how do we compare these packages and how do we select the one that best fits our needs. So hopefully that's a good um, a good response for you on that. Um, I'd love to know what you think about uh, about this when you start thinking about um, executives that have bias too. I'm curious how many of you guys have seen that because. Um, sometimes we, we have executives that say, well, you know, this is the software solution that I want. And that's what I'm going to stick with. Um, and sometimes they're in the driver's seat and they're the sponsor. Other times they're an outside influencer on the steering committee. And um, those type of biases are, are things that we um, commonly confront um, and, and commonly help our clients to, uh, to see their way through.
2: We're in the middle of a presentation here with Adam Cheatham talking about software selection best practices. We have a lot more to get to. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
6: Download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
2: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 89. We're here in the middle of a conversation with Adam Cheatham from. Third stage consulting,
1: talking about software selection best practices. Let's jump back into the conversation. As we continue on, I have uh, the remainder of these slides are detail around the rest of the, the selection process um, in each of these boxes themselves. So, um, the current state assessment, when we talk about that question of how do you get the right level of requirements, um, you start with that in the current state assessment itself and start thinking about um, what are your functional area breakdowns. What does your software system um, today look like? What do your processes today look like? And what are our potential for improvements? This is where you start answering that question of why are we doing this? Um, and that's for that second box there. We're doing this to improve our processes and to get more effective and more efficient. And, and we understand that the purpose of software here isn't to change software, it's to change processes. Um, and that's a, a, um, something that will be an ongoing change because the idea is to not only just enable one change for today and one massive shift, it's also to enable continuous improvement for the ability to grow within our processes and continue to, uh, to, to achieve additional uh, efficiencies. Again, as part of this current state assessment, we start thinking about uh, data systems and infrastructure to, uh, to talk through how it is we're going to um, pull apart our software system and plug more things back in it's not uncom- uh, uncommon to have gaps in your uh, software itself from a functional area perspective that's why we have process problems right because our software isn't fitting our needs today but it's also not uncommon to have redundancies um, you know um, just this week actually i was talking to an organization that Uh, Say, well, some people use this system for that and other people use that system for this process and it all ends up at the same place. So that's all fine, right? Well, um, just because it ends up at the same place doesn't mean that the journey to get there can't be the same uh, or shouldn't be. Because at the end of the day, well, if one person is using a different system to get there than another, you're really starting to create divergencies in your processes that cause inconsistencies in data. And frankly, using two systems for anything is a uh, uh, that can be solved by one system um, is inefficient in and of itself. As we continue through the software selection process, you will use those requirements to refine a long list first, and then dig down into a short list and narrow that down. Um, like I said, the the long list um, starts to create uh, an evaluation of software packages that. Could fit your requirements needs from a um, from a very very high level. We think about software packages that are strong within a particular industry, uh, software packages that have the geo geogra- uh, in, in system integrators and 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 the like that have the geographic coverage for being able to solve for um, deploying software. Right, if you're just a um, if you operate one location that runs warehousing, manufacturing, finance headquarters all in one spot, that's a simpler look than if you have um, multiple different uh, headquarters in different countries across across the world. So you wanna make sure that you're thinking about how it is you handle some of those key requirements at a high level that are um, specific indicators of how a a software system needs to be large enough or small enough to handle your, your needs dynamically. We work with, uh, with the long list first and then start um, really considering the greater detail behind the requirements. And, and then we use that to narrow down to the short list. Um, I like a short list of two, maybe three. Um, having more than three for uh, though, is, it really starts to continue down that path of potential analysis paralysis. Um, by the time you get through the evaluation of your fourth software system, you've forgotten the first one. Um, um, and everybody's brain turns to mush when you start thinking about demonstrating for different software packages. Um, So We want to have a a smaller short list that gives us a chance to really narrow in on a couple, maybe a third uh, software packages that really can tackle the, the most unique and critical needs of your organization. That should be based at the requirement level, um, and how it is those types of organizations can meet your requirements. Um, so when you start sending out RFPs, you don't you're not surprised by somebody who says, "Yeah, I can't do most of that stuff." Doing your research and getting your shortlist right means that when you really get down to the RFP level and and compare requirements responses from one vendor, to the second, and potentially a third, you get a really good one one to one to one analysis of where the key gaps are. Um, Again, in today's software environment, there are gaps in all software systems. I don't care how big a box software you're talking about. No software package does everything, especially everything that uh, that most organizations need. There's always a uniqueness that needs to be considered. And what we want to do is with our shortlist is create an opportunity for our requirements to really show and illuminate those differences as they pertain to those key critical functions of your business. And if we haven't considered the right requirements to get down to that shortlist, we'll find areas that aren't critical or um, that aren't unique areas. They might be important, but they're not unique areas to your business that, that, that there are gaps and those gaps become kind of failure points as opposed to evaluation points. As, as I was saying, though, the, from a long list perspective and narrowing down to a short list, we really start to think about what um, what are the key differentiators in your unique requirements and what are the verticals uh, within software that can solve for that. Um, certain software packages are, are better than others for things like um, process manufacturing versus street manufacturing, right? Um, those are very different manufacturing processes and processes. Um, and there's certainly specific targets of different software systems um, you know another good example of you know unique requirements and vertical focuses are how complex are your manufacturing operations you know um, are you out there manufacturing airplanes um, and airplane engines with a high degree of scientific perfection or are you an injection molding company that's um certainly has different unique requirements, but the complexity of the bills and materials is very different between those two. And thinking about it from a perspective of what verticals are solved uh, from an industry perspective and how it is a certain software package fit fits those ones or others is really a key component of, of how it is. You take a long list and start narrowing down to a short list. That would, go ahead.
3: I was just going to say, we have a question that I think fits right into what you're talking about here. So mm-hmm. what is the um, the indicators that you're looking at a full-on ERP suite solution versus a best of breed solution? And where does that fit? Or where do you find that out in the software evaluation process?
1: That's actually a, uh, a really good question. And the answer really is I, I can actually answer that. I keep hitting my mouth. Sorry about that. Um, I can really answer that question for you right now. To a certain extent, you're gonna end up in a best of breed scenario. Um, It is exceedingly uncommon to replace every single software that you have today with one. Um, So you gotta think about integrations to a certain extent. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody ends up with a different ERP, CRM, HCM, MES, and uh, advanced warehousing packages. All bolted together from different organizations. When you think about best of breed, you want to think about what your requirements are and how and and what your areas of greatest need are and where you're the most sophisticated. Um, The way I like to consider it is: first, let's look at what we can get out of ERP, and then let's look at our areas that are most uh, our functional areas that are the most sophisticated and complex, and let's find out whether or not those are going to drive the need for more advanced software or more uh, specifically catered software. Um, are you in an industry that requires a specific type of solution? Um, you know, a lot of distribution organizations, for example, um, that are that are focused on uh, dropshipping and things like that, can be rather sophisticated with things like voice picking and. Um, all kinds of pick towers and uh, the different types of ways of managing their warehouse. And in those scenarios, uh, we may find and we often do that while the core ERP itself serves most of the needs, there's an advanced need in that warehousing area that leads us to to say, you have more to consider here. You might uh, think about an advanced warehousing solution as well. Part of that comes out when you write all of your requirements and start looking at what functional areas have the strongest fit for which software. um, And in what areas are significant gaps? Um, So that's, that's, that's one way of approaching it. Other ways of approaching it are kind of based on what type of a business are you, what types of verticals are you involved in um, and what types of um, complexities are within your business. If you have, for example, um, a series of very different um, uh, uh, business units. For example, let's say um, what's a good example? Um, I I have a client who has two different types of products. Uh, one of them is they do manufacturing, and they do manufacturing for specific uh, a specific type of um, of equipment. Um, they also have uh, a services line for um, installing that equipment and setting it up and all those types of things. The needs of those two types of business lines are very different. Um, so you may consider that one of those um, is gonna get an ERP that handles the manufacturing, and then we're gonna tackle the professional services side of it with a bolt-on, with a best of breed application. So that's another example of what that looks like. So um, the diversity of your, your, uh, your business lines and, and, and product lines is, is a part of that. The uh, complexity of your organization specifically as it pertains to um, individual functional areas will drive some of that. Um, But at the same time, some of your general operations will will, um, dictate at least a little bit of of, uh, of best-of-breed solution on the whole. Most ERP packages won't do EDI by themselves. For example, you end up with a bolt on for that. Most ERP packages won't do sales tax either you end up with a bolt-on for that. Um, payroll, another good thing that always ends up outside of core ERP, these are all bolt-ons, um, common bolt-ons, but that does create the um, a best of breed environment that um, the extent of how, um, how complex your best of breed environment is and what, that, what needs are, are, are met by it, um, driven through the requirements. Um, but I think a key part of that is really that when we put out RFPs and RFIs, we send all of the requirements. We don't say, well, you know, I think we're probably gonna end up with a best of breed solution because uh, for, for warehousing um, or for um, an MES bolt-on. Um, so we're gonna leave those requirements out of this. Let's not make that assumption because when you think about those requirements, uh, we wanna start thinking about how it is we look at um, the uh, consolidated solution. The vendor may tell you that they can meet all of those requirements out of the box within their their ERP. And you might be pleasantly surprised by that. Um, on the flip side, they may also come to the table and say, yeah, you know what? Those are pretty special and unique requirements. And we do have a great partner that we have a, um, a strong integration with. Um, they might not be the software that you would select independently if you selected one software system based on about your best of breed needs for a certain functional area, but that the strength of an integration can really, um, can really go a long way for saying, our ERP integrates really well with this um, advanced warehousing system. Um, others are maybe more challenging. So when we think about how it is that integration comes together, we wanna consider that. I know I'm running out of time here, so I'm gonna, gonna keep going, but feel free to continue asking questions. Um, Overall, when we think about narrowing in on an individual software, we have a lot of different types of ways looking at this and we started to think about how it is we engage with vendors. Um, A a couple of things that are key to this is first and foremost, you wanna have really strong demonstration scripts. That's the most important part of the demo process is having demonstration scripts that represent your day-to-day needs clearly in a scenario-based fashion. Then that way you're asking the vendors to show me how you solve for my day-to-day needs um, and yeah sure we'd love to see your bells and whistles and all the wonderful things that you love to sell but i still need to know where you work and where you don't so that i can use those both as key components of the the evaluation itself um we do like on-site demonstrations because there's a lot that's to be gained from seeing it but remote demonstrations can be effective as well um as you engage with your vendor through demonstrations and RFPs, you wanna to start to consider uh, that scripting is a key component of it and, and making sure that that's tightly, uh, tightly oriented towards your project needs. The purpose of a software selection at the end of the day is to create an, a variety of variables that tell us which software systems are best fits for your organization or another. Um, proposal analysis, demonstrations analysis, and things like that. Um, really a key component of it um, with the proposal analysis asking the um, can you do it? Yes or no, Then demonstration analysis, how well do you do it? Um, we always recommend business case analysis. Um, I like a total cost of ownership over five years that considers what are the license fees upfront? What are the continuing and ongoing license fees? And what are the costs of implementation services? Those are three key components of that. But you may also consider what are the costs of uh, integrations? What are the costs of anything else that is going to be necessary to support this? Um, what are your project management needs from a PMO perspective? Um, and then just as much, there's, it's also important to think about what are the costs that, that are going away too, because you want to make sure that you measure that. Um, I also like to think about reference calls and visits uh, for software selection in the lens of not asking your vendor to provide a reference that says, hey, your software works because they're going to find somebody, right? That's Every software package works for somebody somewhere. Um, What we're looking for in reference calls and visits is how did that vendor handle your challenges in implementation? Uh, When you really got to that point where uh, finance is screaming the loudest about what they think they need, um, how did, in operations, which was a higher priority, really is getting steamrolled Um, How did your system integrator help you through that in your implementation? Those are the types of questions that I think are more helpful in understanding what it is we're getting into. So, um, on the whole, once you know who you're going to select, you want to think about having um, uh, negotiations with them that creates a a really strong long-term relationship, right? Now you do want to make sure that you have a clear negotiating strategy on what's important to you from a cost perspective and, um, and where it is you want to target your, your, your negotiations efforts. And you want to be clear on where you can be flexible and where you can't. Um, overall, um, you also want to think about how many users you had today and some of these other things that are on this slide. Um, I think that the most important component of this is uh, going to be imp- a negotiation for implementation services and relationship management is a key component of, of this conversation. Um, not everybody realizes that when your system integrator says, here is your scope of work and here's our master services agreement, um, those are negotiable. You know? um, you know, it's, we're not talking just about negotiating software prices. We're, we're talking about negotiating terms and conditions and things like that. Um, in our expert witness program, we find that uh, failures in negotiations on terms and conditions and creating clarity within the statements of work um, can really be a key, um, key component of how it is you draw uh, up your implementation and what the support for that looks like on your side and the vendor side. And in, um, in a lot of our expert witness cases, we find that the ones that didn't consider um, negotiating their project plan, for example, are the ones that are that that struggled the most with their implementation, um, as it pertains to trying to figure out how it is that moves along. Uh, here are a couple of additional key thoughts on um, best practice, right? So um, I'll highlight a couple of these um, right there in the middle. Nothing can please anybody. Address your needs, but understand that there is going to be a degree of um, business change, right? That's the purpose here. We're not looking to take our old processes and codify them in an expensive new system. We might as well keep our green screen if that's what we're going to do. Um, the other one is that your processes are going to change. That's the purpose, and let's let's own that. Let's lean into it and understand that that's what we want to do. So, um, I really do appreciate you guys' time today. Uh, we're really excited to be uh, to have all of you here with us. Um, these, these, these conferences that we run um, are a ton of fun for us. We like putting them together, we like putting them on, we like sharing our knowledge with everybody. Um, we really appreciate your, uh, your participation here, as well as your, um, your questions and your comments. Uh, thanks for joining us today. I uh, hope we hear from you at some point um, on how it is we can help you solve some of your selection and implementation challenges. Um, I just see here real quick before I I jump, as a nonprofit organization, one of the challenges of our digital transformation journey is not finding best breed applications that fit a good extent of the core needs. That's actually, um, nonprofit organizations are really a lot like um, field service organizations in that there's a core function in the middle of there from an ERP perspective, but there are other outside needs that aren't commonly handled well. Things like project accounting, when you're thinking about uh, donations and government grants and having to be able to report back on what it is, uh, where it is every dollar went because some dollars are allowed to be spent or some euros um, or whatever currency you use um, is allowed to be spent for certain functions, but not others. Um, Traceability on that from a project accounting perspective is important in nonprofit organizations. And you may find that um, you have a core ERP that handles basic needs um, and then some type of a bolt-on that helps with that project accounting side of things. So it, it really is uh, nonprofit organizations are on that list of, um, of ones that more frequently end up in a best-of-breed environment because their, their needs are more unique than the general core software systems are, are uh, accustomed to being able to handle. So
3: Yeah, and I think that's a, a great kind of overall thesis of this conversation is the the ability to find out which software solution meets your business needs. Really, as we've been talking about kind of our example around uh, the house analogy, right? Reaching out to that expert, that contractor, that advisor, even just to just have an informal conversation because there's so many options in the marketplace. Um, And then also I'll just um, let you know on the nonprofit side, um, Adam did a video on our YouTube channel um, as well on nonprofit opportunities that we've worked with when it comes to software selection. So definitely go check that out. Um, software selection is something we have probably the most content around. Um, it is really our wheelhouse. and our number one recommendation all the time is there's no cookie cutter template. There's no, um, and if someone hands you that, you should throw it back in their face because there's no way to really address the needs of the organization without really understanding it. So thank you so much, Adam, for joining us today.
2: All right. Thanks, Adam. Great conversation. Thank you for allowing us to replay that presentation for you from our Stratosphere Conference. And again, Go to stratosphere2022.com if you'd like to see other workshops, other presentations and sessions that were presented during that online event. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, though, we're going to debrief and talk about some of the lessons and themes from that presentation. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back.
4: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
2: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 89. I'm here with Kyler talking about this presentation we just heard from Adam Cheatham talking about software selection best practices. What were some of your takeaways and lessons from that conversation?
3: Yeah, well, I think sometimes we tend to to overlook the basics of software selection and the importance of it. um, And just understanding that that is really going to be the main mechanism to achieving a successful digital transformation and, and even a successful growth of your business fundamentally. Uh, so I think a, a lot of times those pieces we um, we overlook and just you know being able to kind of na- navigate the sales process or navigate your own internal requirements as what Adam said, you know, those things really need to be established before you even have a conversation with a vendor so that you're prepared and armed in understanding your overall objectives, your needs from the software and your future state. All of those things need to be done. And that's kind of what we come in and, um, help our clients do. And if, And I thought it might be interesting because in in case you didn't know, Adam is my husband, same last name. Um, So we share an office and we actually had an interesting, or he had an interesting conversation with one of our prospects in software selection. So I thought I might ask you a question that they asked him that I'd never heard before. And I thought it might be something interesting to kind of unpack this conversation. Um, as I we have separate offices in our home. So I was eavesdropping outside of his because I was very interested in, you know, what he, he was going to say to this and and this client in pers- in particular had some great questions around the use of our approach and our methodology so we take those requirements that are needed by the business that we help clients discover and then we put them into our proprietary database and they asked, what is the measurement for success of a software selection? Is it, you know, a successful implementation or is it the fact that you reached your certain business goals or do you have data around that? And and Adam kind of explained to them, well, it's, it's really unique to each business um, and, and how that works. And so I thought I might get your take on the success of a software selection or how you might explain that um, to a potential client or partner.
2: Yeah, the first thing we look at is is functional fit to purpose. And and, uh, Adam's right. Every organization is different. Every organization has different needs. Some organizations have pretty basic vanilla commodity types of processes. There's nothing super fancy that they're trying to accomplish necessarily with their back office processes potentially. But there's other organizations that have really complex business models or complex operations. And so and the latter model, you know, in the case where it's a complex business, you're just, you're a lot less likely to find the perfect solution. First of all, you're not going to find a perfect solution for any organization, but you're a lot less likely, you know, the more complex you are, the bigger you are, the longer you've been around, um, the more unique you are in terms of competitive advantage against your, your competitors. So you really have to look at it case by case, but, but what I'd say is if we do measure it, you know, we measure the fit to prove of potential solutions and you're looking for the one that gets you the closest. So once you've, you've objectively quantified which one gets you the closest, I wouldn't say you can declare victory at that point, but I, I would say that you have defined the best solution that has the best odds of, of supporting your digital transformation. More important though, however, than the software selection process, and I don't want to be dismissive of the software selection process by any means because it's very important, but even more important is the implementation process. So in other words, if I If I had a really close, if I had a close comparison that shows that these two solutions are neck and neck, and there's really not a material difference quantitatively between these two solutions, but one of them is going to be easier to implement, or one just fits better with our culture, or fits better with us operationally, or whatever the case may be, I'm going to take that any day over, you know, over the other one. Um, So I think that's the the way to look at it is, you know, software selection. Yes, you want to get as close as you can, but you don't want to overthink it, look for, for the perfect answer because there is no perfect answer all you, all you can really expect is to find the best answer and then shift gears and focus on now how are we going to deploy that in a way that's most successful for us
3: and what would you recommend eric if if um you have some conflicting opinions specifically in your executive team you know say you had an executive leader that had worked with another system that had really liked that system um, had kind of a biases and there is this analysis paralysis kind of creating a cancer throughout the organization. How do you address that?
2: It's a great question. It happens a lot. You, you you have the executive that's biased for or against a solution because he or she used that solution at a previous company and had a good or bad experience. And so it creates a bias. And and every organization, every person is going to have some degree of bias. But the key is how do you how do you mitigate or neutralize the bias and how do you get aligned? So I think, you know, the best thing you can do is really quantify and be objective about uh, the comparisons. Um the bias stuff, though, that's really hard to overcome. If you've got a, if you've got an executive on board that, for example, had a had a failure implementing a certain solution, and that certain solution is the best fit or has been identified as a really good potential fit for your organization now, um, it's going to be hard to overcome that perception. And so, all you can do is really educate and show a path of how this would be handled differently than what that person may have experienced in a failure in the past, and show a better path forward. Having said that, there are times though where you kind of have to go with the, the bias, and you hate to say it, but at some point you realize, you know, we're not going to overcome the bias. We've tried overcoming the bias. Um, as long as the bias isn't leading us into a really bad decision, if it's a pretty good decision, but maybe not the ideal situation, but but you at least get some buy-in and support, even if it is biased, at least you're getting some head or some tailwinds to support the decision. Sometimes you've got to ride that and say, okay, well, we're going to go that direction. And now we're going to really focus on making sure we implement well. And back to your point, you don't want to get caught up in analysis paralysis because a lot of times organizations just can't decide or they can't agree on what the best solution is. And they're just wasting time and money. And that's time and money, you could be investing in the implementation itself. But instead, they you know, spend more time and money than they should, or they just never get to a decision, which is even worse in many cases. So those are some of the th- ways to think about it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's a really refreshing point um, and a a great kind of message of what Third Stage does is just that, that honesty of saying, you know, solution A might be the ideal scenario, but you have support for Solution B that is still a very good option. It's almost like, um, you know, we needed a, a third car here in our family uh, to be able to support all of the things that we go to. My husband, Adam, loves Jeeps, obsessed with Jeeps, even to like an unhealthy level. We go to the Jeep club. We, I really thought we could use a different vehicle that could fit all of our stuff. We have a two-year-old and a three-year-old. There's a lot of, of maintenance and two big dogs. But at the end of the day, he wanted this brand. That was something that, that was really important to him. We needed a car. So did I think maybe we could have done a different solution um, to, to achieve our goals? Yes. But at the end of the day, this was something that made the best sense for everyone kind of involved. And I think that is true for an organization as well.
5: Right.
2: Every, every organization needs to go with their Jeep instincts if that's what they've what they've got. And our job is to say hey if it's a really bad fit, well that's our job as consultants is to say okay, that could work or no, that's a terrible idea and even though you've got support for this terrible idea, you, you still don't want to do it. So you see both but um, you know and that's part of the role we play when helping our clients through that.
3: Absolutely. And that use of that database um, in in saying real data and taking all biases of, around it and actually leveraging the technology to say, this is what you need. This is the match. And this is our, our best recommendation. But overall, we're here to support the organization's success as a whole. And software selection is, is just a piece of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Very true. Well, good stuff. Well, I think it's uh, a great conversation, a great place to leave it, um, obviously, software selection is an important first step in the digital transformation journey. So if you have questions about that, feel free to reach out to us. That's something we, we do quite frequently with our clients is helping them select the right software, helping them define the right digital strategy to deploy that technology, and ultimately helping them through the whole journey. So feel free to reach out at any point if you want to chat about how Third Stage can help you uh, with that, that transformation process. So all that being said, I want to thank you, Kyler. Great episode again. Thank you for being here, and uh, thank you to our guests. uh Brad Feeks and Adam Cheatham for providing additional commentary and and analysis in the show. Be sure to check out new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also go back and find all 87 or 88 episodes before this one um, on those same outlets as well. And you can also find us on all of the audio podcast platforms or most of the leading audio podcast platforms, I should say. Be sure to search for us there. It's called Transformation Ground Control. So thank you for listening. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care.